Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Well, guys, it's a few weeks away till the California weekend starts kicking off. I'll be down there just one weekend. Unfortunately, there's too much going on down there, and I've got other plans. So I will be there the first weekend in June, just before my birthday week, uh, before my birthday, which is June 6th, for those of you guys keeping track, buddy. And uh, I'll be down there hanging out, checking out Octo, checking out the ISP West Open House, uh, checking out. I'm trying to figure out what car I'm going to bring down there. I've got another car I haven't received yet. And I may run out and grab that thing and uh, and bring it down just because uh, that's what you do, right? Just try to bring something funky and fresh. So I may do funky fresh this year. And, uh, you know, of course, wait till last minute to figure out what I'm bringing. But I'm looking to have a good time. I mean, I might I may be down in the Beetle Barn bus, the carbon cab, uh, rag job. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. We'll see. We'll get it figured out. But I promise you one thing. I will be there that weekend. So I'll be at the RVA show. Yeah, I'll probably be at the ID buzz thing that's going to be happening on, uh, I think it's Thursday or Friday. I can't remember. And I may be down there a little bit earlier to do some recording for uh, some of their podcasts. So getting some people on the podcast and checking some things out. So I'm excited to get down there for my, usually my favorite weekend, which is the first weekend in June. So uh, other than that, guys, don't forget October 6th and 7th is one crazy weekend. If you haven't registered and booked your rooms now, I promise you go register and book your rooms because they will run out of rooms. So I want you guys to get your rooms as soon as possible. Even if you're maybe, maybe not going, book your room. You can always cancel it. Or even better yet, if you're not going to go, reach out to me through DM or Facebook if it gets down to the wire and say, hey, Bill, I got a room I reserved. I'm not going to be able to make it, but give it to so-and-so. Because always just before the show, I get people texting me saying, hey, you know, try to book a room. The rooms are all sold out. So look, guys, book the rooms. You got what I'm saying? So <clears throat> who knows, man, you book the room, you get it for 50, might be able to sell it for 75. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that to VW people. Okay. Uh, but other than that, uh, what else we got going on here? We got plenty of stuff happening. Lots of people sponsor the podcast. I got new merch, just hit the, hit the scenes, two new designs. And I've got some keychains being made, some, uh, doing some retro keychains for, uh, team VW, I got some of those being made. Uh, a couple of you guys that may receive some of those keychains now, those are the first three in production. And I gave those out uh, to some long-time long time listeners and some people that were really down on one of those keychains. So I put an order for in for production. They may be a little different size than those ones that got sold. So there's a three of three that are out there right now floating around. And I'm all about exclusivity, so I think that's pretty cool. But just to let you guys know, if you have one of those keychains or receive one of those keychains, know you're one of the lucky ones. So, uh, and I got to give a shout out to my guy, James Sofer up there in, uh, around the outside high in the middle up in Ohio. Cause he, uh, one of my homies been on the podcast and he placed an order and I kind of got drug up on some stuff. So signed it, you know, and sent him an extra goodie and he's my dog. So uh, you guys make sure you check out his show that he's doing. So, that'll be coming up this year. As soon as I get more information, I'll start promoting it for him. And, uh, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to trying to see if I can make it out there this year. I don't know. Uh, I've got two weeks in June that I'm gone uh, with my kid and be doing, be doing some father son stuff. So after that uh, summer's the summer's kind of open, got a lot of stuff happening, but I'm looking forward to getting out there and uh, seeing some people at some of these shows, man, looking forward to it because we got the new merch out. There's a cool new logo. The Let's talk dubs logo. There's also a cool, 
script logo. So the one's kind of an old school postcard style, and it's got some Vegas flavor, some VW stuff in it, and the other one is uh, like an early type script. So go to letstalkdubs.com and check out the merch. Shout out to some people that supported the podcast. We had Steven Peter, and Steve Peter is from Vegas, and he won his square back super dope. Shot by Eric, my buddy Eric Arnold for Hot BW's Magazine. And it took best of show last year at One Crazy Weekend. So shout out to Steve Peter for supporting the podcast. And also Michael Hartman out of Fairmont, West Virginia. Just ordered some merch. And then I released the new merch. And he hit me up again and ordered some more. So shout out to him. And then my guy Lionel Mendoza, OG from the way back. One of the, one of the early Let's Talk Dubbers. Uh, my dog Lionel in, out of Torrance, California ordered some new merch. Freshed himself out with some gear. So I appreciate the support, guys. You guys are, you guys are rad. And uh, I mean, when it comes down to it, I just like making the stuff to get it out there for you guys because uh, ain't nobody getting rich off it. But it's just something fun. It's something fun to do and to contribute to the community. You know, last thing we all need is more T-shirts, right? So um, I appreciate you guys for supporting the podcast. Lots of things coming up. Lots of podcasts that are in in the edit bay that are coming out. If you guys haven't checked out my prison podcast make sure you go search Arrested in Mexico and it's the author's Bill T and that's my, uh, coming on, we're on my one year anniversary of uh, getting released from prison in Mexico last year when I disappeared for two months. That whole story is on a podcast. It's edited, uh, audio engineered and edited by Steve Connect's son, Ryan Connect, who's a phenomenal musician. Uh, check him out. Go give him a follow. It's Ryan Connect and he he edits the podcast. He does the audio on it. He just does a fantastic job, man. So you guys owe it to yourself to listen to this gut-wrenching story. Uh, and feel free to DM me some questions and whatnot if you have that. I mean, we'll, do a, we'll do a roundtable. We get peppered with prison questions on it. But it was quite an experience. Uh, it's almost done. I got one more episode to put out. There's seven out right now. There'll be an episode eight, and then that's it. That'll be the finalist. I decided doing epilogue episodes. But uh, I'm looking forward to that coming out. Uh, episode eight and just being done getting all the podcast kind of behind me. So with respect to the prison one, it's just been, it's been a year of just trying to put that thing together and, you know, really wanting it to be good. So I'm really, I really try to take some time to really work the story more like, um, it comes across really, really descriptive. So it takes a little more, a little more effort and time and planning than the podcast. The podcasts are, you know, for me, they're awesome interviews and great conversations and, that brings me to this week's podcast. This week's podcast is fantastic. John Lazenby, if the name doesn't ring a bell, it should. He is one of the founding members of Decliner Panzers. We get the original story of how DKP got their name. We get the original story of how the club came together. We get insight as to how the club kind of transitioned and some things to that degree. Uh, lots of cool stuff. Lots of inside baseball that you didn't know. John Lazenby was also the general manager for Auto House. So there's so much information on this podcast that I'm excited to get it out to you guys. So before I suck up too much more of your time, let's get into this week's podcast. John Lazenby, DKP1 founding member, general manager for Auto House on this week's Let's Talk Dubs. You probably don't know that there's a new Volkswagen out that doesn't look like a Volkswagen.
Okay, everybody. So on today's show, uh, I've got John Lazenby. Now, the name may be familiar to you guys if you've been in the cow look circles for a while. And some of you that have not been, John Lazenby's background goes to a founding member of Decliner Panzers, aka DKP, that you guys know, the famous Cowlick Club. He was also the general manager for Auto House, and he'd worked at Auto House from 1971 to 1981. And he uh, wrapped up his career as the owner of Roy Z Inc., which was an auto parts supplier and manufacturing company in Southern California. So on today's show, I'd like to welcome John Lazenby. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So, John, the way that we always start the podcast is, what's your VW story, and how did you get into Volkswagens? Well, my VW story started actually 60 years ago, 1963. I was a 16-year-old kid. I was working, and I wanted to buy a new car. And uh, what I really wanted was a 1963 Ford 406-4-speed. And my dad was fine with it until he saw the motor and the transmission. He says, no, you're not getting that because he probably figured I'd kill myself in it. And he was probably right. Yeah. So in a, in a, in a moment, I said, well, then fine. I want a Volkswagen. Um, and shortly thereafter, um, I had a Volkswagen. I actually bought a new Volkswagen from Econo Motors in Riverside. That's a name that some people should know. Right. Uh, July 31st, 1963. It was a red 63, ruby red 63 sunroof car. Um, and I owned that car. That's the car that became what a lot of people will know as the butternut car. Uh, that's the same car that I owned for 10 and a half years. So that was the beginnings of my Volkswagen um, connection, if you want to say that. And then... Go ahead. And that well, and so my question is like, I mean, that's a pretty far jump to go from a, a Ford to the the Beetle. Like at that time, were you kind of were you a car guy already, just trying to figure out what part of the car scene you were going to get into? Yeah, I've, I've been a car guy my entire life. Uh, I mean, literally from the time I could walk and talk, I knew what cars were. I knew cars, and I knew what I liked. And, and I liked, you know, typically I like powerful, fast cars. That's what my dad was kind of a Ford guy. And, and, and I was always fascinated with those. I'm a Chrysler guy too. Yeah. Uh, any cars, things like that. So, um, yeah, that was it. But then the Volkswagen thing, there was a, there was a guy by the name of Steve Cooper that lived about two doors from me and mm -hmm. he had a red 62 sunroof. And I think back. I used to walk by that car and that's kind of maybe the attraction that got me interested in Volkswagens. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a, that's a pretty far stretch. And so at this point you had to know that you could make Volkswagens fast. Right. And so, uh, well back then there wasn't really a lot of stuff. I mean, MP was there, but we were kind of ignorant on, on, you know, MP and performance stuff. There was a, in fact, I still have the book, a small book, how to hop up VWs that showed, you know, uh, Denzel stuff and Ukraza stuff and, uh, you know, things like that. And, but that was for a 16 year old kid that was far fetched, you know? Right. So we didn't know what we could do. It was kind of trial by error, you know, to make things. And, uh, I had met a couple of guys along the way, um, Schneider Motors, George Schneider, who was actually Dirkliner Panzer's first sponsor, um, he was a local mechanic in Anaheim, a German, uh, a German guy that had come out of Germany. It was J and F. It was 
It was Joe and Fritz, and they did repair work. He actually became the first uh, BMW dealership in Orange County. But prior to that, he was doing Volkswagen and Porsche. And I used to go in there, and I became friends with him. Well, there was a guy that worked there by the name of Bob Wilson. Bob Wilson was a little older than me. I'm going to say he was 18 or 19 at the time. Mm -hmm. And he had a white 59 convertible that had Porsche wheels on it and a few things like that. So Bob and I kind of struck up a friendship. He lived fairly close to me. And then I used to go out cruising the local spots here. And I used to see this gold VW driving around, but it was kind of the coolest car around. And the thing that made it cool, it was really a nice car and it had Jardine headers painted on the rear fender. Well, that car turned out to be a guy by the name of Rich Kugel and Rich and I became fast friends in fact we joined the navy together that's oh. that's what the friends we became his brother uh, some of you might know his brother is jerry kugel of kugel components uh jerry is still around these days 80s now they they built suspensions and stuff for early fords e-jag type stuff inboard brakes independent suspension chassis the whole thing um and i used to go to bonneville with rick and with jerry i was there in 1969 with, with both those guys Wow. And, uh, so the three of us, Rich Kugel, uh, Bob Wilson, and myself, we kind of formed a club called Volkswagen Limited. And we got a lot of people to come around. And then we would we got this idea to do uh, a caravan, an Anaheim to Hollywood caravan. We were based out of Anaheim. Anaheim to Hollywood caravan. And so we made up flyers, and we would go around to all the colleges and we would, wherever we'd see a VW, we'd put flyers on the windshield. Mm-hmm. And we ended up doing the first rally. We had over 100 cars, which I don't think you could do today because of the, the laws and whatnot. But we drove 100 cars from Anaheim to Hollywood, Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard, and back. I led that. Thing. Oh, wow. And it was, it was unbelievable. When you looked down the freeway and you saw nothing but a line of Volkswagens for as far as you could see. So we did that, and then I had a couple of other friends that I'd gone to met in junior high. Gary Huggins, these names are important, Gary Huggins and Pete Dayton. Mm -hmm. uh, Gary Huggins got his, uh, he bought a new 66 Beetle sunroof car in late 65, and Pete Dayton had about a 61 Beetle. Well, the three of us got together, and they kind of came into VW's Limited. But in the meantime, Gary was a big history nut. So he went he and Pete went to the Anaheim Library, which ironically ended up being next door to Decliner Pandora's first clubhouse, literally next door. And um, he got in, and he, he started finding things. But Gary Huggins was the guy that's actually – credited with with coming up with the name of their Kleiner Panthers. He's the guy that's credited with coming up with the logo, with the with the Volkswagen logo around that. Um, he got that off of German military stuff. Mm-hmm. The time probably wasn't real popular. Right. right. But anyway, that's the origins of it. So the three of us were the three founding members of their Kleiner Panthers. We all went to Anaheim High School. We were in the same class. Uh, and, and there were a lot of, there were a lot of people that were involved in it and it was more of a social thing than anything. Uh, at that point, there were still some performance stuff, uh, you know, 
headers were coming into fashion. Um, fortune headers. Some of you old guys may remember fortune headers. Bob Sanchez was mm-hmm. the guy. Yeah. That I think Ron ended up building exhaust systems for Gene Berg. Uh, I actually had the first set of 40 horse fresh air headers that Bob Sanchez ever made on my car. Oh, really? And those were installed at Schneider Motors in Anaheim on then Los Angeles Street, today Anaheim Boulevard. And, uh, you know, it, it evolved from it evolved from that point. So um, then I built my first motor. Uh, Joe actually built it for me. We walked down the street about a block to Potman Cams. He got a Potman Cam. I ordered a Judson supercharger. So by 1964, I had a I had a supercharged Volkswagen driving around, which was unheard of on the streets of Orange County. Nobody had anything like that. Yeah, and where what like where are you able to buy the supercharger kit from? Uh, the supercharger I actually bought from a place on Whittier Boulevard called the Custom House. Uh, the guy that owned it, his name was Willie. He had a beautiful black 60 Beetle that had every accessory known to man that parked out front. Well, he was an older fellow then. And uh, he ordered it. I think he ordered it from, from Birch, which was up on uh, Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena. But anyway, that's where it came from. And as I recall, it was about $180, which was, you know, an unbelievable amount of money. Yeah, I mean, $180 back then was like a, a middle class weekly wage, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was working as a box boy in a, in a grocery store making $1.57 and a half an hour. And then I had to pay union dues out of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was a it was a big deal. It was really a big deal. So, uh, but anyway, I got that. And uh, I guess that was the, you know, you, you mentioned the cool factor. And I guess that was the cool factor was the, the fact that I'm driving around in a supercharged Volkswagen. And I used to go to all the spots where the you know the Fords and Chevys and the Mopars were, and they kind of they kind of looked down on you a little bit because why are you here? What are you doing with that thing? But there were a lot of college kids in getting into Volkswagens for other reasons. You know, economically they were they were affordable, they were dependable, you know, and uh, and they were great transportation. So it evolved from there, and then. Uh, the draft, the draft thing. By this time, we were all in college, and the draft thing started coming along. So, uh, now, Rich, Rich Cook and I joined. Uh, we joined the Navy Reserve down at Los Alamitos, and and we were in the Navy on active duty, both of us for two years, and that completed that. Gary Huggins went into the. Um, he went into the Army. He became a. Um, we got on the tank court first, and then. He got into helicopters and he actually got shot down twice in Vietnam and walked away both times. Wow. Uh, Pete Dayton, um, Pete Dayton got in the Air Force and he stayed in the Air Force, I think, about six years. And then when he got out of that, he got into the civilian side of that. And, and I've heard stories that he had, he had, he was out of uh, NORAD. Mm-hmm. He had communications on a weekly basis with the Secretary of Defense, oh, wow. which just astounded me that Pete Dayton, this guy that I went to school with, would <laughs> end up with something like that. And then, and then Gary Huggins, uh, he he stayed kind of in the military. He became a CW six, the Chief Warrant Six, which is high as you can go, and he became a, a private pilot for some well-to-do people. He flew a lot of famous people around. But both of those guys, Huggins and Dayton, 
had moved on from Volkswagen by that point. And we remained friends. Uh, Gary Huggins passed away a few years ago. We were we were best of friends. And, and Pete Dayton, as far as I know, is still alive. He's living somewhere in Arizona, I think. Um, but really, and now back then in those days, right? This is before, really kind of before lowering cars starts happening. Now that all that all when when I went in the service, the lowering cars we had we had wheel adapters and where you could put a, a Chevy bolt pattern. Uh, like an American mag onto a Volkswagen. That was the big thing. In fact, we used to raise the front ends. We figured out how to do that. Uh, and that was the cool factor then because competition rates back then, if you looked at a lot of the American cars, they would they would raise the front end for weight transfer. Right, so kind of a gasser we, look. Yeah, we went we went to the service. So from 67 to 69, I was, I was gone. I got out in... Uh, April of 69. I might also add during this, during this story, there was another guy that was very important in my life that, uh, that I met probably back in 1964. Uh, his name is Jim Edmondston. A lot of people know him as Sarge. Uh-huh. Jim and best friend. Uh, I was Jim's best man at his wedding. Jim was in my wedding, as was Gary Huggins, um, Dave Patrick, who's both going to Kleiner Panzers. But, um, uh, Jim, Jim and I, Jim went in on it. He was in the army. He went in a couple of months before I did. And he actually went to Vietnam on the ground and he got out, I think about the same time I did. So we started, you know, kind of, we reconnected and started palling around and, uh, you know, he, he kind of got active back in the club and I came along a little bit later, maybe a month or so later, but bar- probably I got out. I'm going to see April of 69 and probably by May of 69, I was, I was getting involved with the club again. Well, by this time, the lower front end thing with that, that was kind of a, a I guess it credited to Greg Aronson. There was a guy named Rick winter that I think actually did it before Greg by pulling the, by pulling the leaves in the front end. Um, but that was all happening when we came back. So the, you know, the whole, the whole thing had changed. It was, it was no bumpers. It was simplicity on the cars. Um, and by this time, of course, there was, uh, there was a lot of performance stuff out there that was available. You heard names like Greenberg, of course, Dean Powery. Uh, you know, Empty was still around. Uh, the, the name that really a lot of people never really heard much about, uh, but was very, very instrumental uh, for Decliner Panzers in particular, and a lot of the other guys around was a guy named Earl McMills. Earl McMills lived over in, I believe it was Inglewood, and he was a retired machinist from North American Rockwell Douglas or one of those aircraft suppliers. Mm-hmm. Well, Earl McMills was bringing in, um, and I think there was a connection there with it. Earl McMills was bringing in SPG roller cranks, he was bringing in Okraza cranks. He was casting his own cylinders. Uh, he was he was a very innovative guy, but he never got a lot of public notoriety about it. And we used to go over there. It was Ron Fleming, Don Crane, Mike Mahaffey, myself, probably Greg Aronson. We used to go over there, and uh, we'd go into Earl's house, and it was a house probably built in the 20s or 30s. You'd walk down the driveway that was a little two concrete strip like for a Model T Ford. 
and you go to his, you know, single car garage, walk through, go to the back of it. He had a machine shop there in the back, extension in the garage, and that's where he did all this stuff. Oh, and wow. it was magic. It was just magic. Uh, but Merle, you know, he kind of, he never got the recognition I thought he should get. Yeah. Um, those were the guys. Well, anyway, that stuff started coming around and, you know, then we started to, we started to really get into it. Well, in 1970, I guess it would have been 1970. I went to work for a place called AJS foreign car parts, which was on state college in Anaheim. And what was it called? AJS foreign car parts for Alan James Sharon. It became actually part of BAP Gion. But Jim Sharon had a series of stores around the Southern California. And I got a job there uh, working counter. I'd, I'd gone to school for computers, but realized I wanted to do this. So I got a job there. Well, at that, at that location, there was a machine shop in the back. And two of the guys that were working in the machine shop in the back were Greg Aronson and Doug Hayden. Now, everybody knows Greg, Greg Aronson's name. When Greg left there, he went to form FNA. No, he went to Gene Berg. I take that back. Mm-hmm. He and Ron worked at Gene Berg. And then they left Gene and they went to work for, they created their own company, FNA Performance. And then later, that FNA Performance became Fat Performance when they brought Mark Thurber into the equation. Right. Doug Hayden, who had a brother named Witt, we were all in DKP, by the way. Mm-hmm. Doug Hayden uh, had a younger brother named Witt. And they went off and they performed, or they created Hayden Brothers uh, Porsche, which is still in existence on uh, Lakeview. Excuse me, it's on Orange Park at Lakeview today. Unbelievable. You, it's Their shop is cleaner than a surgical room. It's an unbelievable place. Really? And they're, they're, still, they're still going today. Uh, I see them on occasion. They're not really in VWs anymore. They're into, you know, uh, Porsche and Mercedes and BMW. And these guys, so you worked for these guys. They had, it was like a part. Well, we, we all worked, we all worked together. Uh, Greg and Doug worked in the machine shop in the back. And I worked up front, the counter in the parts. And they at were the same location. We all started there. And they were doing VW performance back then too. Yeah. There was a little bit of it. It was more of a generic type store. Mm-hmm. So then what happened? Um, I got married in uh, August of 1971. And we went on our week honeymoon when I was working for, oh, here's another interesting note on that. Um, the, the AJS stores, they had a store on Main Street in Santa Ana, 721 South Main to be exact. Mm-hmm. And I was working at that store and that's where I was when I went, took the, the week off for my honeymoon. And I came back and about two weeks later, uh, I got word that Auto House was looking for someone to work, you know, to work in the stores. Well, I'm thinking, well, this is right up my alley. This is what I want to do. But I had a pretty secure job, and I moved up a little bit. And I'm thinking, do I really want to leave this security? But anyway, I went over and I interviewed with with Lynn Rosevere, and he hired me. And I went in working the – I was kind of what they call the floater. I was the guy that covered – between the Buena Park store, which was the original retail store, 6315 Beach, and they just opened the, the Costa Mesa store. That was 1953 Newport Boulevard. And in a short time, Lynn 
gave me the Winter Park store, so I became the manager of that store. That quick? And it was pretty quick, yeah. Now, the significance of that last location, the BAP that I worked at, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know um, Tiger Vasquez and, and uh, A1 Performance Exhaust. Yes. That's the same building. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, Tiger, Tiger and I are buddies, and, and Tiger says, you know, he's always telling people, he worked in this building 50 years before I did. Well, that's wild. I, I Tiger's family owns that property now. Yeah. But yeah, same building, and when I walk in there, it's really, really bizarre to go back, you know, 50 years in time. So anyway, um, I, I got the job at Auto House. I did that. I started advancing. Um, right after I started there, a couple of new guys came in, a guy, Dave Greiner, which is performance, still around. Dave and I have been friends for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. He came to the auto house right after that. And Craig, who I just saw yesterday, Ed Craig came in. So Ed came in and he was working for me and he was about a, about an 18 year old kid then working for me. And, um, so, you know, a lot of these guys, the connections started coming along. Well, in the meantime, the DKP thing just kept evolving. Ron Fleming had given up Mustang and gotten into the Volkswagen world. And when I came back from overseas, Ron was involved with the club. And he was, you know, he's, he's kind of got that outspoken leadership role. So a lot sure. of people, you know, Ron is one of the Kleiner Pangents. Well, I'm not going to argue that point, but Ron certainly didn't start it. He came along much later, and if you ask Ron that, he will he will agree with me on that. He came along much later. And now, <clears throat> talking about the scene back then. Now, before before you go to Vietnam, you've got this hopped up '63. Mm-hmm. Are you are you street racing people? Are they street racing? And where would yeah, they? Yeah, I, I used to go to Lions Drag Strip. Oh, so you'd actually uh, take it to the track. I was racing at Lions Grasher. Was the car fast by the day, today's standards? God, no. You know, but we, we went down there and it was fun. Now, when I came back, by the end of that summer, in the summer, I had, I had uh, Gene Berg's shop actually build my first, if you want to call it a big motor, it was a 1769 by 88 motor with a, with a, a Holly bug spray on it. Right. And that was the first big motor. And then uh, I, after that, I thought, you know, I can do this myself. So I just started building my own motor. I built a, I built a 78.4 Krause by 88 motor in 1900. In the meantime, the car kept evolving. The car had gone from the, um, from the Ruby red in 65. I'd had it painted uh, fireman green. Uh, and it stayed that until, 1971 and while i was in while i was getting married the car ended up over becker's bug house and that's where everybody's car went and it became the war bonnet yellow and became known as the butternut car which was the final configuration of it and so you owned the car while you were while you were still gone in uh in vietnam yes yes the car remained in my ownership for 10 and a half years And uh, it it lived at my parents' garage while I was gone. So the final iteration of that car was that car became known as Butternut, right? It was the the Butternut car. It was um, 
it was very similar. It was done about not too far after Greg Aronson's The White Car that everybody knows. But Becker, you know, he filled all the holes. It was a dollar hole to fill the holes. Uh, bumper holes, exhaust ports, all this different <laughs> A dollar. There was a, it was a dollar hole. That's what <laughs> Leonard Becker charged back then. And, uh, and so he painted it. And uh, uh, in the meantime, uh, did some more work on the motor. And that's when I was building the 1900 motor because I'm at Auto House now. So I, can, I have access to parts. Um, so I built a, a 1948 IDA motor. And that went in the car. And what kind of uh, what kind of heads on that are you doing? Uh, Ron, Ron Fleming actually did the heads the, for the first set of heads on that car. They were dual ports. They were they were. I remember when I bought the case. I bought a I bought a German uh, dual relief case from a Volkswagen dealer. Yeah, guys are gonna love this. It was one hundred and five dollars. Wow, they're ten yeah. ten times they're that now. now. Yeah, or more. You know, and the carver, the 48 IDAs we had on the retail on the on the wall in the stores, I think was, I think was 74.95 or 79.95 a carver. That's crazy. You know. Um, and now the li- I'm, I'm looking at a picture of the car. Now the license plate hanger in the front. That's just something custom you fashioned. No, actually, I got that idea from Jim Edmondson. What that is is the overrider brackets on the front bumper. Uh huh. Um, if you take those, there's two <laughs> in the bottom below the spare tire well. The drain holes? Yeah, you can mount you can mount the, the brackets there. They come out, and then they make a 90-degree turn upward, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what the license plate goes to. That's crazy. And then you can kind of swivel them based on to line up with the license plate holes. Yeah, Jim Edmondson came up with that idea. Well, that's pretty slick. So it's a repurposing the, the original bumper, the overrider brackets. Yeah, exactly. Now the turn signals, those look like, the, is it something off the shelf, the, the inner turn signals that you guys put okay, the rounds? Turn signals, there's a story for those too. Yeah. Greg Anderson, when we worked at the AJS Foreign Carports store, Greg found these Lucas turn, turn signal lights or Lucas running lights on the shelf. And that's where the first set came from. I can't tell you how many sets of those I sold, but they came out of there and he took them over and had Becker. When the car went, the car was brown before it was white. Mm-hmm. It was sort of dark metallic brown. Um, he had Becker, you know, fill the holes, cut the holes, put those lights in. That was the origin of those Lucas turn signals. Well, my car had the same thing. Now, um, BRMs, everybody was buying you know, all the BRMs up that they could find. Right. Because they had become, and, and I guess you can credit, you know, uh, the BRMs were becoming the rage when I was overseas that, you know, Don Crane and, and Ron and Greg and guys like that, they were all buying these things up because they're, they were a functional wheel. But the wheel I always equated to was the American torque thrust wide five lug magnesium rim, which you never saw around. And there's a story about that. Yeah. What's the, what's the, how did those wheels come into existence? Where's the first time you saw them? Well, I think, I think, and I can't verify this, but I think the American torque thrust wheel predates the BRM. Really? Uh, the first time I ever saw a set was in 1964. And when I first saw them, just like when I first saw the BRMs, I didn't like them. 
because then chrome wheels were kind of the fashion, you know, shiny and sporty. So anyway, um, Doug Hayden, who got married a month before I did, he's got a pregnant wife living in an apartment. And Doug comes to work one day and he says, hey, he says, I called American Racing Equipment in Rancho Dominguez. And I wanted to see what inventory they had left. Well, he says, are, are you interested in going in on this with me on, on the buy? I said, yeah, sure. So Doug and I ended up buying the entire inventory of the American five lug wide, five wide lug American torque thrust wheel, magnesium wheel. We also bought, we made an eight spoke wheel too. We bought all those and, and we had, we had the wheels shipped and delivered to his apartment, which was in Fullerton. Now this his is wife, his wife, Kathy went through the roof. Yeah, I can imagine. And this is directly from American racing. It was American Racing and Rancho Dominguez. That and, was the word. And what year is this? That would have been 1971. So at this point, those wheels are outdated. VWs are made now with four lug, and this is kind of dead inventory on the shelf type thing. Yeah, inventory because nobody wanted them. So anyway, I had actually found a pair of used Americans uh, prior to that, but I, I chased it. It was a gal driving a Baja bug, and I spotted them, and they faced her down. And I, I traded her the two American wheels for two Porsche wheels on, I think, $40. Oh, wow. And I got those two. Well, that's when I became interested in them. So once we did this, Doug and I figured out the inventory. Um, I took I took five or six. Now, these are brand new wheels. They're still in the box. Yeah. I took five or six of those wheels. I think I, I know I took five, and I think I got a sixth one because I wanted a spare just in case. And Doug's brother, Witt, got a set. And Doug got a set of the eight spokes because Doug's car was a European 66. It had four lug wheels with disc brakes in the front. So he got a set of the Americans, um, the, the eight lug or the eight spoke Americans. And then the, the balance of the wheels, we put up for sale, primarily the club members, to cover our expenses. And I, th- I think... If I remember the numbers correctly, once we had those wheels landed, I think the wheel cost us like $28 a wheel landed. Which is a lot of money for a couple young kids. We were selling them because that's when BRM's new were selling for $50 from empty. For so one sold, wheel. We the balance of the inventory for $50 a wheel. And we didn't, we didn't have any problems selling them. They went quick. Now, how many wheels did you guys buy in total? Do you remember? I'm thinking like about, oh, I'm thinking like 60. So 60, 60 freaking wheels show up to this guy's apartment to his girlfriend's apartment. Yes, yes, yeah, I can still hear Kathy on the phone. What the hell did you guys do? <laughs> called the shop because we were both in the same building. She wasn't happy. Uh, but, I mean, it, it worked out. We got, our, we got our money out of it. Yeah. And we were able to put these things into circulation because who knows what would have happened to them otherwise. So the wheels, if you're looking at a picture of the butternut car, I am. the wheels you're looking at on there were brand new out of a box on that car. Wow. Yeah. And they, uh, and they look and they have, but so here's the other thing. They've got a really deep offset on them too. They've got a what on them? They've got a deep offset. So you have to, 
it almost well it looks like it's got a lip on it but it, i mean it, you know and, and i know that with original brms right they really um, push to the outer edges of the wings you know what i mean like all the way out to the, the and the wheel now there's a company there's a there's a company i think in england called jge that makes a knockoff on that correct and then he has also got a knockoff yes uh and they're, they're similar they're they're pretty close but not exact Right. And, and either of those wheels are magnesium. These were magnesium. Um, now, anyway. now I, I, have, I have a question about magnesium wheels back in the day, right? Like everybody that I know that has a set of BRMs that's been running on the street, they're all, they've all pretty much been welded. Was it commonplace for those wheels to crack? Yeah, it was. As a matter of fact, Greg had uh, on, on his car, he had a rim on the back that, as I recall, at Orange County Raceway, he, he got on the car and the whole outer lip of the rim came off. Oh. And that wheel ended up being, that in, that wheel, as I recall, ended up being a hose reel at FNA Performance. <laughs> so like the yeah. wheel split in two? Yeah, within, just the outer lip of it literally cracked off the entire rim. You know, from putting the load on it, from from jumping on the car and laying the tires up. Yeah, they just did it. You know, and today, you know, people, you know, those wheels are both the Americans and the BRMs are very coveted. But the reality is, you're driving on a a fifty or sixty year old magnesium rim. Yeah. And the problem with magnesium is it gets old, it gets brittle. So from a safety standpoint, I don't know how good it is. Right, right. Could be. I mean, it, it, you hit a hard enough pothole, you could break your wheel. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, and I mean, it, but it was a religious experience every day to come out with. Some guys used Brasso, Edmonton, and I used Semichrome, Happish Semichrome polish, and you'd sit there on the ground and you would polish that, you know, that shiny part of that rim until your finger turned black. And magnesium had a different. It had a different look. It had a you can make them shiny like whom, but it had a blue hue to it. Right. It was it was a different hue than an aluminum or a, or a chrome finish wheel. And of course, you, you literally. I mean, I, I did it daily. Yeah. It was, I, it was, every day you were out there doing that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I've got a car with the original set of BRMs on it, and it doesn't take much. For those, it doesn't take much for them to tarnish, and it's almost like. That's a that's a I'm I'm a lo, I'm a kid of the '80s, so I'm a low maintenance chrome plated kind of guy. And I'm like, man, that's a. Well, in the term we used to use, Fleming was always good for coming up with with quirky things, and and the term we used to use for those was they're out there growing hair. Yeah, growing yeah, hair I mean, on the wheels. That was true. They did. Uh, uh, you know, you had to stay on them because then nobody wanted them to look the the natural rough casting. Now, if I had a set today, I would never touch them. I would just let them grow, and you get get corroded or grow hair because to me that's an interesting look today. Now, the the mirrors on the side of the car those were uh, those were Talbot Juniors. Talbot Juniors, and those were sold at the auto parts place you guys worked at. Autohouse sold those. We also sold another product that you will see on a lot of the vintage cars. There was a local guy. He was an older guy. His name was Ernie Hanline. Ernie Hanline did engine turn stuff. Quite good. He was down in, I want to say, Laguna Beach. Mm-hmm. He did the kick plates, the threshold plates, the front kick plates when you open the door at the front. He did um, pieces to cover the dash on the on the 58 through 64 cars. Um, he met 
uh, engine turn pieces. He also did headlight bucket inserts uh, that you could put in there with the engine turned. And that was a, that was a big deal. That stuff was expensive. And as far as I know, I've heard stories his son is still offering some of that stuff today, but I seldom see it. Yeah, that was, and, and that comes from like, but the origins of that is like aircraft stuff. Yeah, the engine turning thing, you know, where they literally, it was all hand done. You take a dowel and put it in a drill press and start moving the metal through and, and doing that. And what was the was, what was the purpose of doing that, to not have to polish it or to keep it from looking no, scratched? It was just an appearance thing. You didn't have to polish it once it was done. It pretty much it pretty much stayed, but it was just, it was the appearance of it. It was, uh, I don't know, it really looked sharp, we all thought. Yeah. No, I mean, so, it, it definitely was, it definitely was a cool look. And so... And, and the picture I'm looking at online of your car before you then had it lowered is, I guess, in that dark green that you had it painted. So it went from ruby red to dark green. That was fireman's green. It was a Cadillac color. What color? Green? It was a 1965 uh, Cadillac color called Firemist Green. It was a pretty heavy metallic. And that's all they the rage, green. right, when you get a metallic yeah, paint they, job. They made green, blue, red. And I think gold Cadillac did in 64 and 65 and they called it fire mist. And what earlier you referenced, you saw a car with Porsche wheels on it. When you're talking about Porsche wheels, you're talking about the, the, the Chrome, the Chrome, uh, wide the five, slotted, the slotted, the slotted Chrome Porsche wheels. Yeah. The, the wide, the wide five slotted Porsche Chromes. four and a half. Um, if you've got real lucky, you can get five and a half. And then there was a place in, um, at the time, it was in La Mirada. It was Johnny Speed and Chrome, mm -hmm. uh, who ended up having another retail store just down a half a block down the street from the Auto House retail store on Beach Boulevard in Buena Park. And Johnny Huey was the guy that owned that. Johnny was quite a character. And you could go in, and he would take – he would build you anything you wanted. So he would take the, the, the Porsche-style center and put it on a six-inch Chevy outer oh, and really? put, in, put in any offset you wanted. So we did that. Uh, we did that one too. Now, so back to part of your history. So now you go and get this job at Auto House. By the time you start working there in '71, is Johnny Speed and Chrome around then? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They were they were literally a half a block down the street from Auto House. And were they uh, like a force? They, they were like your main competition, or was Auto yeah, House like? They were, yeah, they were. They used to certainly get Lynn and Ron Roseberry. <laughs> they used to get their blood pressure up. Uh, and, and another bit of trivia there, uh, you guys probably know the name Rick Sadler. I know. Yeah. Rick Sadler, who's is a DKP guy. Rick Sadler worked at Johnny Speed and Chrome. Now I don't think he worked there that early, but he was there later on. Right. No, we've had, we've had Rick. Rick's kind of the Forrest Gump well, of, he's, a good guy. <laughs> he's kind of the Forrest Gump of VW. He's, he's in the background of every picture at some point he in does. time. That's Rick. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, now, Johnny, what was the reputation of some of these companies like? If if like if well, you if you wanted to work someplace, you don't work here, yeah, work Johnny, there. Johnny Speed and Chrome. The guy's name was Johnny Huey, and and the 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 the, the, the thing we used to call it Johnny's Chip and Peel. Uh, he, he owned a place called Jippy Plating that I think was in La Mirada, mm -hmm. and he did a lot of plating stuff. But his his reputation wasn't stellar i'll just i'll just say that right like he'll get it chrome but it's the chrome won't yeah, the chrome won't had, make it home you when know, we were we were kids and we knew what we wanted and he was the he was the guy that had it right 
he knew you guys so were on a budget, so you, well, he can get yeah, you cheap exactly. chrome. Exactly, and it, you know, I mean, we, you know, you wax the I wax my car every day. Yeah. So you know, the rust was a thing that didn't exist in my world. Right. You know, uh, but yeah, we we did that, and uh, John was around for years and years and years. In fact, he was around long after the auto house chain went away. And now, as you started working at um, at Auto House, mm-hmm. you're still a VW enthusiast at this time that you're working there. You've kind of moved on, sold your car, and you're kind of moving on a little bit, or because you have your car for ten years, sixty three to seventy three, right? Yeah. What happened was I was still at Auto House, but I a couple of things happened. We ended up buying our first house uh, in nineteen seventy three, and by that time, the first iteration of, of DKP. It was kind of people were, you know, our lives were changing. We were getting older, people were getting married. They were, they were having families, just, you know, they were going in different directions. Well, my interest kind of started to drop off. So, um, as a lot of other people did. So, sure. uh, um, I put the, you know, I thought we're going to buy our first house. I can't be doing the car thing in this. Um, so I put the car up for sale. Now, let me describe the car before I tell you what happened to it. It was a 78 by 88 motor, then with 42 DCNF9 Webers on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it had um, it had SNS competition headers on it with a merge collector, five American magnesium rims, Becker paint, uh, Brad's interior, that's another name we haven't touched on, Don Bradford. Brad's interior, he did all the seats, the headliner, the carpet, the sunroof, the trunk, and he made a custom bra for it. Mm-hmm. So the car had all of that. He he also did Greg Aronson's The White Car. That's where the biscuit thing came from, was, was uh, Don Bradford. that and, and everybody was going there. He was Becker's was the go-to guy. Brad's was the go-to guy for all this stuff. So anyway, that car, what happened was I was on Harbor Boulevard just below Disneyland one day. And uh, I saw this Anaheim cop pull up behind me. Well, I knew what it was going to be. The car didn't have bumpers because the bumper holes had all been filled in. And the cop pulled me over right by the convention center. And he walked up and he goes, I hate to, di- I hate to tell you this. But he said, I got to write your citation. And it was because of that. So I took it back to Becker's. Becker's cut the holes open. We put like your old blades on the car. But I just lost interest in it at that point. Right. The other problem we used to have with the law back then, you don't hear much about that, the headlight law, uh, which, as I recall, the center of the beam to the ground had to be a minimum of 24 inches. Well, a Volkswagen, Volkswagen on a good day might be 23 and a half inches. But anyway, we started rolling the cars. So the cops loved that. Anything they could nail us for, gloss, lowered cars, anything, they'd come after us. And I got this idea. What about putting air shocks in the car? And so what I did, I got a set of Delco air shocks, actually mounted them upside down so they would clear and you could buy a kit that um, was a little control panel, and it, it ran plumbing. So I had empty tall manifolds on the 48, and they were all tapped uh, for intake. So I ran back, and I tapped into the manifold for vacuum. So what I would do, I would lower it, and then when I would see a cop coming, 
I'd reach over in the glove box, I'd hit this button, get off the gas, and it would start pumping, pumping the <laughs> So the cop at Union, this actually happened to me on Broadway in Anaheim one day. I'm going east on Broadway, and the cop, in fact, I think I was going over to Greg's house. And the cop sees me, and I see him, and as he's making the U-turn, I hit the button, and I'm on and off the gas. So he pulls me over, he comes up, and he kind of does a double take. And I said, what'd I do? He said, your car's too low. I says, it is. Well, he kind of has this closing look, so he gets out and measured. The car wasn't too low, so he couldn't write me a ticket. <laughs> That's pretty so slick. That was one my one moment of glory with the police. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, after all of that, it just it became too much of a hassle. So I put the car up for sale. I was still at Auto House, mm-hmm. and I started advertising. I think I wanted, I'm thinking like $3,500, which was a lot of money. Then. Yeah. Uh, and I got nobody. There was no interest. And, and this went along with the other thing I was seeing. I was seeing the interest in the Volkswagen performance in kind of fading. I'm going, how much longer is this going to be here? Right. And I don't want to be here at the end of the road. So anyway, I had a guy that called me one day. He and his dad came over to look at the car. We had actually moved into our first house, and we were doing a lot of work. And uh, I didn't spend much time with the car. I took the car to drive to and from work, and that was about it. So anyway, long story short, this guy's name was Perry. He worked for the phone company. I ended up selling that car, as I described, which makes me sick when I say say it today. I sold that car for $1,500. Wow. And six months later, he rolled it. No way. Rolled it and destroyed it. And the last time I saw the car, I found out where it was. It was on Harbor Boulevard in a muffler shop in Fullerton. We drove up there and there was the car. Well, a couple of the DKP2 guys, Roger Greco, and a couple other guys got wind of it and they went up there and they got a lot of stuff off the car. They got the they got the wheels. They got I had video gauges, I had a whole custom dash in the car. They got all that. Uh, they may have got the motor. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, that was the last I ever saw of the car. And But the car, you know, kind of lived on. I know one of the guys got the DKP badge off the hood. And and, and the car lived on, you know, in, in that aspect. Yeah. Um, that's, that's that's a wild story. You know, and it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you hope that. So I, I'm what my first my first Volkswagen that I really, really was into was a 63 Ragtop that I pulled yep. out of the wrecking yard. Same thing with yep. me. I kind of, I blew up my engine after spending all my money building this car. And I just said, that's it. I'm done with it. It's for sale. Yep. I, I sold it for $3,500, like in 93 with no motor. And I'm like, right. I'm done with it. And it was almost finished. And then today I'm like, man, where'd that car go? I got to find that car. Well, yeah, I, mean, I do that. And I mean, we got rid of it, but I always had, a, I always had a VW. We had a, we had a <laughs> I had a VW bus then. I had a 71 bus that I built a two liter motor for, mm-hmm. uh, which I had that today. And, uh, but there's always been a Volkswagen in my life. And then, you know, moving forward, we, we bought our first house and we just committed ourselves to working on the house. We were there for five years and we basically <clears throat> doubled our money. And then we bought our second house, which we're still in today. We've lived in this house 45 years. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, but during all that time, there were always BWs. So, I got into, um, 
I get into other cars. I, I, I've owned about 13 BMWs, a couple of M cars, got into those, uh, did a lot of stuff with them. And I've, by now we've still got one that my wife drives, but uh, for the most part, I'm kind of done with those. And I always had an interest in, uh, the, the VWs were always there, but I always had an interest in early Chrysler product, Hemi's primarily, because I learned to drive on one. My dad had a 47 Mountain Country convertible, which really started my whole love affair with cars. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll get into that. So close to 40 years ago, I started buying those. And I built a garage because we had a big piece of property. So now I've got I've got uh, eight collector cars, five Chryslers and three Volkswagens. And, you know, not enough time or money to do anything with them anymore. But I've got them all here in the garage on the property. Yeah, and what are the Volkswagens that you currently own? I currently have a a stock, pretty much stock, 1963 Black Beetle that I bought from the original owner 42 years ago. Um, it's it's probably my favorite. Um, it's got Porsche chrome wheels on it, but it's set stock. I built a 1600 dual port for it, switched it to 12 volt. Other than that, it's bone stock. Yeah, and it, it's a nice car. And then I've got a 1960, um, it's called Palm Green. I didn't build the car. I was going to build another car. But then I realized this was 11 years ago. I thought, I'm too old to do that then, and I'm really too old to do it now. So this was a done car. It's uh, it's It's got a 2276 and it with 48s. Um, it's got real folks on it. It's got four-wheel disc brakes. It's, it's kind of a high-end car. I don't drive it a lot. Right. That and then I bought for my wife, who never drives. I found I wanted a sunroof car. Well, I found a tan sixty-one year old sunroof car that's got a twenty-two seventy-six in it with forty-eights. But that needed some work. So my friend Greg Britton spent he and Roger Crawford spent a lot of time uh, on that motor. They had it on the chassis dyno and got a hundred and forty horse to the rear wheels on it. Wow! Uh, I've got that car that I drive around a lot. That's really a user-friendly car. So I've, those are the three Volkswagens today. And then the other cars in your collection? Oh, I've got, well, let's see, going chronological, and I've had a lot of cars I sold, bought and sold. I've got a 1953 Chrysler Imperial Newport, uh, which was a two-door hardtop late production year. Uh, they made 823. I've got an original car, probably the nicest original car in existence. I've got a 1954 town and country New Yorker wagon that's literally Pebble Beach quality. I didn't do the work. I bought that car from an estate of a longtime friend of mine last year. Mm -hmm. Got a 1955 Chrysler New Yorker deluxe town and country wagon that has some Hollywood history. Uh, I've got a 1956 Chrysler 300B that I spent eight and a half years doing a body off restoration on. I finished that 29 years ago. That car's got a little over 8,000 miles on it now. Wow. And I've got 1957 Chrysler 300C Coupe uh, that's been at the Peterson Museum two or three times. Um, it was brought in one of three cars for Motor Trends Car of the Year. Um, they had a thing called the Fence Display. It was up there over a year for that. And I've had other cars that have been at the Peterson. But that's that's really it right now. Now the the, the three hundred is it the black one? Yes. So that and is that car? 
uh, one of the tallest tail fin cars out there? Actually, no. And everybody will say, well, the tallest tail fin's a 59 Caddy, but that's incorrect. Right. Unlock is the one that's made the mark with that fin, but actually the 61 Imperial, by then, <laughs> were not in vogue. That fin is taller than a 59 Cadillac. Yeah, that's, and that's what I kept thinking is like, I know Chrysler had the tallest fin because the big misnomers, the 59 Caddy had the yeah. tallest tail fins. Yeah. But no, that was the, the, the 56 actually started the, the fin thing for Chrysler. The, guys, the designer's name was Virgil Exner. Here's something once again related to Volkswagen that the, the VW guys hate to hear this, but it's true. Um, everybody talks about the Carmen Dia, you know, being a German car. Well, the reality is the Carmen Dia was a car designed by a guy named Virgil Eckner, who designed all of my cars uh, at his Detroit sub, uh, suburb home. And they built some Chrysler concept cars. And then a few years later, uh, Volkswagen approached Gia and Eckner, and they put together the deal. And that's where the Carmen Dia came from. And if you look at these Chrysler concept cars, you can see the Carmen Dia. Oh, 100%. The Gia, the Gia came off better because proportionally it was smaller. Yeah. The Chrysler was too big. No, there's – and it's interesting because you, you, you're essentially into two two kind of oddball monikers, right? Like the, you've got the Volkswagen, you've got the Chrysler, but yeah. they're both in respect to themselves from an enthusiast standpoint. Like when you find a VW guy, they're pretty hardcore. Same with the Chrysler guys. Like they're really yeah. – they're really dug down deep into the. Uh... Well, what you know, and what, and I know this is about Volkswagen's, but what drew me to the Chrysler thing, of course, was my dad because of he had Chryslers and he had that town and country, which I'll never forget. But once I got into it, I started doing a lot of research, and you know, Ford and GM were pretty progressive with their styling and whatnot, and they made some good stuff. They made some junk too, as Chrysler did. Right. But when you get down to the engineering aspects of it. Chrysler had the engineering that the other companies really didn't have. Chrysler was the first car with factory air, other than the 41 Packard. It was the first car with power steering. It was the first car with power brakes. It's all engineering aspects. It was the first car they offered disc brakes in 1949. Oh, wow. A disc brake, like you know, we know disc brakes today. It was an Oscar Lambert, which was an aircraft brake. But, I mean, they were very innovative and stuff like this. So that intrigued me. And, of course, the Hemi cars. I, I have five Hemi cars now. So that, that, you know, I was always into that. Yeah. No, it's, it, I mean, there's 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 so much in the car hobby because I've got a couple other brands besides Volkswagen. The largest yeah. part of my collection is Volkswagens. But, right. you know, I, I have a 65 Buick Riviera, which to me is one, one of the. One of my, one of my all-time favorites. I happen to be a fan, I'm more of a fan of a 64 Riv because I'm not wild about the clamshell headlights. Well, the clamshell headlights from a functional standpoint are kind of a pain in the neck. Um, sure. What I do like about the 63-64 is the side The side looks like a, the mock intakes on the rear quarter, which is a right. really a really cool look. But, you know, these, these cars that, uh, you know, from my standpoint, I think late 50s to the mid to late 60s had the best styling of vehicles. No, I agree. I agree. You know, and I mean, luckily for us being Volkswagen enthusiasts, Volkswagen kept their original shape. Other than Porsche, I don't know very many other cars that kept their original shape. Oh, no. 
Although the Volkswagens, when you, I mean, at the time, I, I would look at stuff and I go, God, I remember when, the, when we went to look at the 67 Beetle and I go, God, they've ruined it. Yeah. Because what I'm looking at are the, the different headlights. I'm looking at that bulge on the deck lid on the back. And I'm looking where they took the trim down the side and cut it about 50% of its width. <clears throat> and I'm going, what's this all about? Well, and, and, and that's a good question. So as a like an enthusiast, right, at the time when Volkswagen is still building the beetle and it's in its it's mid 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 run right mm-hmm. you're looking at that 67 and the on the street are is that the is that the kind of the consensus is that everybody thinks oh man vw ruined the, the new beetle or there are guys that are i mean you probably have two different camps right guys that are all pro new beetle and then no, i don't i don't know that it was real strong one way or the other i know that initially i didn't like it at all that just me uh, I guess I'm too much of a traditionalist, and I saw these changes that I didn't like. And everybody says to this day, oh, the 67 is the pinnacle car. Well, it may be. And I've, I've developed a respect and an interest in them, but never enough to go buy one. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, a uh, really a 58 through 64 guy because the window size, I had an oval window at one time, had a split window at one time. Uh, split window story was um, Doug, Doug Gordon. Do you know that name? I don't. Doug Gordon. Doug Gordon was the owner of the un- underdog, wow. the race club. And yeah. Ron Fleming was Fleming and, and Gordon. Well, once again, Ron got all the, you know, the hoopla and the notoriety, but it was Doug Gordon's car. Doug Gordon was the money behind the car. Well, Doug was very, very close friends with my wife and myself. He had bought a 40, a 50 split window from Bruce Crowler, Crowler Cam. Yeah. And when I saw the car, it was a standard. When I saw the car, I said, Doug, I'd like to buy the car. But he sold me the car. And I never really did much with it. I know that the motor was made in December of 49. I remember that. Mm-hmm. But we ended up selling that car as part of the down payment when we bought our first house. And, of course, today I regret that. Now, that was that. But, if, if it was a standard, it would have been a cable brakes car? You could push the pedal and hear all that acting going on. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what it did have that was really unique and. I hate to think what the value of this is today. It had a teleflunking radio in it. Oh, wow. You know, and that, that's got to be big money today. Yeah, no question. It, it was a good straight car. It had the 16-inch wheels, everything. But it just, it, it was, you know, my life had gone in different directions. And I just, I can't go in five directions at the same time. Yeah, no. And you see that as you look at the evolution of the hobby, right? There's the guys that were really into it in the beginning. And then they all hit that early twenties. They find they, they get serious with their girlfriend, becomes a wife. Mm-hmm. Then they get then they get into a career. Then they get job focused. And some of the guys just stay. Some of the guys maybe are lucky enough to kind of stay in that industry to some degree. And it can be lucky or unlucky, right? Because if you take something you're passionate about and make it your job, it becomes maybe sometimes too much to deal with. You know? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think I may be to a degree one of those people because I I love cars so much. I wanted to be in the industry. I could have gone in other directions. Uh, I probably at one time was kind of approached to go to work for Ford Motor Company, but I, I said no. I really don't want that because it involved traveling and, uh, you know, just playing the game of the, the corporate game. And I wasn't into that, but I stayed in the industry. I was always in the car industry, the parts industry, and I was in it for 45 years. Yeah. And then I could have probably made a lot more money doing other things, but the, the, I enjoyed what I did. I enjoyed the bonds that I made with people that I had friends of mine. I, I made 50 years ago that I still have today because yeah. of 
and I still have the same interest. Now, I was the guy that, you know, I did that all day. But you got to remember, what I was looking at was I was kind of a number cruncher. Right. For this. I was looking at, you know, profit margins and things like that and personnel, dealing with personnel. And when, when you have people working for you, the biggest headache you have is your personnel. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know that. So um, you had that. You had to play all the the mind games with those people. <laughs> but I would come home and I would get into the cars, whatever it was. It was kind of an escape for me. So you know, I never really left it. I just did evol- different evolutions of it. You know, from the Volkswagen to BMW and then to the domestic stuff. Yeah, I, I, I say that to my wife. You know, sometimes I say, all I've got to do is go drive one of my cars for a half an hour and I come back and I go, all right, whatever it is, it's worth it. You know, it's it's worth having, you know. And this- I, I agree with you completely. And I got to say that, you know, I, I'm, I'm bad. I'll sit at the computer or something and I'll get an interest in something and I started doing research and, you know, I'll say something, you know, and I'll say to my wife, oh, look what I found. And she goes, no more cars. <laughs> and, you know, she's absolutely right. You know, we're out of room. Uh, I, I can't physically do a lot of the work anymore. And, uh, uh, you know, that's when I say maybe it's time to start letting some of this stuff go. Yeah. But it's like letting children go. Yeah. I mean, the reality is they're going to have to go to different caretakers. Yeah, and that's what we are. We're caretakers of whatever we own. Yeah, you, you kind of get to a point where you've you've you got so much stuff, and you look at it, and and if you don't stay on top of it, driving them and all that stuff, then this one's got a dead battery. That one's got a slow leak in the tire. I just I just said this yesterday. I said at time I was I was at a car thing with some friends, and I'm sitting there, and and I said, you know, I have this thought. What would it be like someday if I simply walked out to my garage and I raised the door and I had my daily driver in there and that was it? Yeah. Would I be happy? I don't know. But I ha- I do know that I've had cars that I have sold and people have said to me, you're going to be sorry you did that. And they were exactly right. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny to try to figure out, you know, it, with 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 transferring ownership to a car because you know even right now I, I end up getting cars where it's like okay I ended up getting this car because I I found it on a good deal and I, that's how I justify the beginning right well it, you know it's money in the bank you know I'll buy the car I can always sell it if I want to and then I own it and then I'm like well it's got some history and I feel obligated it's got to go to the right person it's got to, you know I yep. can't just sell it you know it's not about the profit it's more about the car yep. and well. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And here's, here's a little note on that, that I've, I've experienced myself about six years ago, seven years ago, when I knew that I was going to be closing or selling the business, I ended up selling it. Uh, I had, I had cars stored there. I think I had five or six cars stored there. And I go, well, I'm not going to pay storage fees someplace because that every time you pay storage fees in my world, that's money down the, down the toilet. You're never going to see again. Right. What I'm going to have, I have to have at home. Well, my favorite, my favorite letter car is the '56 Chrysler 300. Mm-hmm. This is the car that I spent eight and a half years on, and you know, untold hours of of labor and frustration and sweat. And anyway, I got a, a friend of mine call me one day back east. He says, "Are you serious about selling cars?" And I said, "Yeah." He says, "Well, I've got a, I've got a guy that I think will probably buy that car." And I said, "Oh, really?" 
I said, well, have him call me. Well, lo and behold, the guy bought the car and he was a, he was a heavy collector back east. He had 37 cars. He had 16 cylinder Cadillacs, 12 cylinder Packards, and he bought the car and he paid me good money for the car. And I watched it go away and I said, okay, well, that's part of my life over. But there was this emptiness in me. And I, I thought, God, I really missed that car. I, there were two cars that I sold. This was one of them that I really missed. And I thought, maybe if I can find one. So I started looking. And I looked for about two years. And these cars are not falling out of the sky. I mean, they only made of 56. They only made 1,102 of them. Right. And so I started looking. And along the way, I had a couple of friends that said, you know, John, why don't you call the guy that you sold your car to and see if he'll sell it back to you? And I said, no, no, I can't do that. I said, first of all, I couldn't afford it. Second of all, um, that's not my style. Well, anyway, I came in one day. I, I drove a couple hundred miles to look at a car, and it was just a basket case. And I'm going, no. And I had, I had corporate guys at Chrysler who had cars calling me. And I know you're looking for a car. I've got one. But I'm going, thanks. I appreciate it. But it's more work. I just, I don't, I don't want to get into that. Right. So anyway, I got home that day. I was sitting here rather dejected and, uh, and ironically sitting in the same chair I'm sitting in now. And for some reason, I picked up the phone and I called the guy that bought my car. And we had about a two-minute discussion. And I said, well, the reason I called and I told him my story. And I said, would you consider selling the car? Expecting him to say, well, yeah, but I want, you know, a million dollars for it and da-da-da-da-da. And he said, you know, he said, I'm 70, I think he's 77 or 70. He said, I'm getting old. And he said, I've got one daughter. He was a widower. And he says, I told my daughter when I go, you need to get these cars to auction. So he says, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll sell it back to you for the same price I paid you for it. And I said, really? Well, long story short, my wife came home. I told her the story. She says, it's a lot of money. I go, I know it's a lot of money, but we can't build a car like that for the money. You know that. So the next morning I called the guy and two weeks later, the car's in my driveway. <laughs> and it, it came back, it's next month, it's been here three years. And and when it came in, of course, I, I didn't sleep. It was like the kid waiting for Santa to come down the chimney. My wife, when they were unloading it out of the carrier, my wife started crying. Yeah. So I said, I think we did the right thing. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of those stories, you know, the, the, the one that got away, but it came home. And the guy told me, he said, you know, he said, I've had the car for three years. He said, I drove it 50 miles. He said, the car is too nice. It just sits there. And I go, well, okay. So it came back better. It came back actually better than it left. Oh, nice. That's one of those rare, rare stories that you never hear, but I, it, it did happen to me. Now, now there's a few Volkswagens along the way I wish that would have happened to, but it hasn't. Wow. And, and, and that's part of, you know, the, the hobby of going through this life where we have, the people and then the cars and the different times in our lives and just trying to, you know, I, I often equate it to like a, like an ex-girlfriend, right? When she's gone, mm -hmm. she was the greatest thing ever. And you get it back. And you're like, why did I get this car back? What did I, what was I thinking? You know, cause exactly. you know, they're, they're, and that was, that was kind of a concern I had. I thought when I, cause I gave up a pretty nice car to get this car back and I I'm going, is this the right thing to do? Well, it, in reality was for my mind. Yes, it was. And my wife, I think would agree that it was, it was the right decision. No. Um, but you know what, you know what else I found in the car world? And you could probably put this to anything. 
the cars are what bring people together. The cars, the hunt is the, is the, the fun of it really, because when you get the car, the reality is now I've got to deal with whatever I've got. Right. But along the way, the cars are the tool to get you there. But in the, in the long run, it's the people that you meet along the way that become the important part of the equation. They, they are because the, you know, as much as let's say a church brings, brings a community together, a car, a car does the same thing because we're all from different backgrounds, but this one baseline attraction of whether it be faith or, I mean, it's funny. Some people don't see how that equation comes in, but I, I see it clearly because it's a neutral it's a neutral piece that we all come together that brings different people with different backgrounds together for the same central focus. And, and having that is like the great equalizer. When you look at, especially the Volkswagen world, right? There's so many people, there's certain cars that are collectible, like some of the 300s that they're like, it's either the old guy that's had it since forever, or it's a guy who paid a lot of money because there's so few built. But with Volkswagens, the hobby in the community is so huge with so many cars built that you've got such a diverse group of people that are into one car. And then that one platform did so many different things from, you know, from vintage rally racing to cow look to, to drag racing, to autocrossing, to off-road racing. I mean, there's the, the, and from that basis, it branched off into so many different things, but I love how it brings, I mean, some of my best friends are people that I've met, through the VW hobby, you know, and, and what I've always said about the the car hobby, and you can use Volkswagen or whatever your whatever your you know flavor is, so to speak. But this is where you will go to a common interest event or something, and you will meet people, and it's where the ditch digger and the brain surgeon can come together and have a discussion on the same level. Otherwise, those two guys, the only time they're going to see each other is if the ditch diggers laying on the brain surgeon table. Right. Right. No. It's that common neutrality that brings people together. Yeah. And and I love I love going to you know to car events and, and I look at everything, anything and everything. Somebody says, Well, I don't like that. And I says, Well, it may not be your case, it may not be my case, but the reality is for me is if somebody has taken enough time to keep whatever this thing is alive and, and keep it going and keep it out there and share it with people, it has value. And I that's I, the way I look at it. And I always find it interesting that you know, especially when I I get the most enjoyment in my Volkswagens going to like universal car shows, like where there's a bunch of different platforms, because then people really connect with the model, right? Like they 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 they'll pick it out of a this basket of cars that they're walking through and go, oh yeah, this particular car brings me this because of this reason. You know what I mean? And and I've mm-hmm. always found honestly that's where you get some of your best leads for other cars. Exactly. When, um, go ahead. I'm sure. No, no. And and it also, you get to hear so many unique stories from people that maybe wouldn't be at a VW event. You know, when I, I used to go to it, it's no longer going at that location, cars and coffee, which was an Irvine at the Ford center every Saturday morning for several years. And it was, it was the greatest event. Probably they'll never duplicate that, that event. Like it, like they had it. They tried other locations, but it didn't be the same. So I used to go down there weekly. I mean, I'd get up at four in the morning to go and I'd always take a different car. And the guys, and I always parked in the same place and guys would come up and I, a lot of people got to know me, you know, and I'd park there and go, I'd take, I'd take the Chrysler's down, go through the gamut. And then I'd show up with 
of my 63 black beetle and the guy walks up to me and i'm standing there he goes where's your car and i go it's right here and they have the most puzzled look on their face they go but but i said well see this is the other side of me you don't know <laughs> yeah i'm not, not just a one-page book you know i'm a car guy yeah no i mean it's when the guy drives through with a four-door falcon i go look at that man isn't that cool yeah i i i really enjoy seeing people that have pulled back the pages of history for really obscure things. And and to me, it's like, like me personally, I'm not a four-door guy, I'm not of that, but when I see somebody that just gets into something so deep exactly. And, exactly. and they're tracking it down and they're, they're the dictionary for that particular car because they've, they're, right. they're one of three people restoring those cars. I have to give them the respect that there's so much yeah. passion behind that that project of getting it to such a degree of whatever they're doing, whether it's a, whether it's a concourse restoration or make it a daily driver or making it a custom, a custom modified version. You know, I, I appreciate, you know, the, the universe, the universally universality, I guess it would be yeah. of the, uh, right. right. Of, you, you, you keyed my mind to another story that I'll share with you if you want to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when back in the auto house days, uh, the Newport Beach or the Costa Mesa store in Newport Boulevard. We had a lot of people, a lot of employees through there. One of the guys' names was was Doug Mesh, who became involved in DKP2. In fact, Russell Ritchie owns his car to this day that, that Doug built. Doug was a real perfectionist guy. But you said something, I'm not into four-door cars. Doug Mesh, and I still get Christmas cards from him every year. Doug Mesh would say, there are two-door cars and there are cars with too many doors <laughs> well and, and what's so, so is he still in the vw hobby uh no i think he's in the motorcycles now he's a civil engineer he lives down in south county and like i say i i see him i see him on rare occasion at events and uh, but he worked for me for years the other guy the story that i really wanted to share with you was are you familiar with a company called kimco yes okay well, the origins of Kimco, the guy that started that, founded it, is a guy named Jeff Kimmel. And Jeff came to work for Auto House. He was about an 18-year-old kid back in the late 70s. And Lynn, when he, when he hired him, he called me and he says, I'm sending a new guy down. He sent him to Costa Mesa because Jeff lived down there. So Jeff came in, and Jeff was driving then about a, a 77 or 78 Dodge van. It was new. Well, Jeff had just come into an inheritance. He was like 18 years old. The story that I heard was that the inheritance was about $35,000, which was a lot of money then. Right. Well, in a short period of time, Jeff was kind of a, he was kind of a, he was a, he had a good heart, but he was kind of a goofy character. And he, he he blew through this money like in six months. And one day he came to me and he says, I want to ask you a question. He says, how do you do this? He says, you've got a, you've got a home. You're driving a BMW. I was, I was driving a five series. Of time. You're driving a BMW. And he says, how do you do that? I says, well, Jeff, I says, look at it this way. I says, first of all, we work for the same company. We get paid the same time. You know, I says, even though our pay grades may not be the same, we both get paid. I says, tell me what you do with your money. He says, well, he says, I cash my check. And he says, I go out and he says, I party and I buy clothes and I do this and I do that. I says, oh, okay, fine. I says, well, let me tell you what I do with mine. I says, I get my check. I says, I take it to the bank. I put it in the bank. I says, I go home and I turn on the TV and then I mow the lawn. 
I says, Jeff, life is choiceless. And I said, the other thing from my equation over yours, I says, we're dinks. I says, dual income, no kid. Because my wife worked in dental for 53 years. Right. So I that. Well, fast forward. Jeff, Jeff leaves Auto House. He starts Chemco. He has a couple of locations. He ends up buying the final location. No, the final location when Jeff owned it was on um, Harbor Boulevard in Costa Mesa. He bought a stationary store property, and it was prime property. And he kind of turned this thing, from my perspective, into a gold mine. And I used to go down there, and I used to marvel at him. Um, you know, I'm going, this was the guy that, you know, in my opinion, was the good heart, but didn't have his head screwed on, right? And he's done really well. Right. You know, and in and, and the meantime, and the, during the course of that, I think his wife, his wife died of cancer. And, you know, but, but Jeff and I uh, were talking. So anyway, I called him one day and I said, hey, Jeff, I said, this black beetle, I've got the 63. I said, hey, I need some stuff for my car. Can you get it for me? And he says, what do you want? I says, well, give me a set of five and a half inch Porsche chrome wheels. Give me a set of tires for one sixty-five, fifteen. And I gave him a whole list of stuff. And I said, just call me when you get it in. I'll come down and pick it up and, you know, pay you. And he said, okay, fine. So a couple of days later, he calls me. He says, oh, yeah, your parts are here. Come I said, okay, I'll be down later on today. So I go down there. And I walk in. I'm looking at stuff. We load it up. I says, okay, what do I do? He says, give me $100. I said, what? He says, give me $100. I says, come on, Jeff. I says, you got you know more than that in one piece here. He says, no, give me $100. I says, why would you do that? And he said to me, this has stuck with me for the bulk of my life. He says, do you remember the conversation we had back many years ago when, you, when I came to you and I asked you how you did what you did? And I said, yeah, I kind of remember it. He says, well, he said, I finally woke up and I finally listened. And he says, you're the reason today that I'm where I'm at. And that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, sometimes we don't know the impact that our conversations no, have no, with I, people. I didn't really, and I, I love telling that story because Jeff and I are still friends. We communicate. He's retired now. He's living up in, I think, Central California, but we communicate on a fairly regular basis. And I, you know, I still hold him in high regard. He's he's a good guy, and he's God. Jeff's got to be in his middle to late sixties by now. Yeah, I definitely would love to get the Kimco story because that's. Uh, that's an interesting, you know, for me, the, 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 the story of how the, the, the business, which part of the hobby evolves with contemporary times, like, and, and kind of bringing it back to auto house, when you're at auto house and you come in there compared to the other automotive places you're working at, because my understanding is, 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 um, Ron was kind of in a technology, right? And mm-hmm. And and so talking about Auto House, Ron Rosevere. Ron Rosevere. Yeah, Ro- so how how was it? Work, like what was it when you came to work there originally? When Ron, Ron was now Ron ran the wholesale end of the business, and Lynn Lynn ran the retail, and Lynn was the one that hired me. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ron Ron's background. Ron actually started Auto House. A lot of people think Lynn did, but Ron actually started it. Ron worked for Motorola, and Ron. I guess approached Lynn and they got this idea. Lynn was working at Autonetics at the time and they got this idea to create this accessory type store. So uh, that's the origin of where, where it came from. Now, when I went to work for them, um, 
we, I, I interviewed with them. They had, I'm leaving a, a pretty, pretty large company. And I went to work, went to interview with them and he's got two garage units. That's the existence of Autobus in the one retail store. And they've just are in the process of opening the second store. And I'm going, this is a bit scary, but yeah, Ron was the kind of the technology guy and Lynn was kind of the, I, I guess he would be the upfront guy. They were, they were, you never know they were brothers. They didn't look alike. They didn't think alike. They didn't act alike. Really? No, no, not really. Not really. Um, and now, but, but at the time that you go to work there, you're still, a, you're still an enthusiast in, into VW oh, at the yeah. time that you go to work there. So it's kind of like you, you get your essentially like kind of your dream job because now not only do you get to pay to mess with, you know, sell VW parts, but you also get a discount. Yeah, I was getting up going to Disneyland every day. Right, you know, and so yeah, you know, and I mean, it wasn't all peaches and cream, but uh, yeah, you know, it was. Yeah, it it's was, still a it job. Was a lot of fun, and and Ed Craig, who who worked for me for a while, and then Ed went out and had his own auto house franchise, um, uh, and we're still. And then Ed worked for me when I was at Roisey. Uh He worked for me there before he went into the uh, auto industry and he got into. He worked for Isuzu and Suzuki. He's retired now, but. Uh, yeah, you know, all these guys that got the names that go through uh, through my mind. As, as a matter of fact, while we're talking, I had a phone call here from a guy named Jim Brooks. Yeah. That I respond to. Jim Brooks is a DKP, one guy who now lives in Missouri. You know, and I hear from Jim every, maybe every six months or something, so I'll have to call him back. But you never lose, you never lose those connections. And then the Rosevere thing. Now I, I communicated with Ron for years. Ron's living in Utah. Now Lynn passed away a few years, but for years and years and years, every Christmas day, my phone would ring and it was Lynn. And he, 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 he always used to say, well, hello, Mr. Lazenby. And I thought, Oh, hi Lynn. How you doing? He always called to wish me a Merry Christmas. Yeah. He was, you know, he he was a special guy. And, uh, he had his quirk. He had his weaknesses like anybody does, but uh, he was a special guy. Well, and, and so when you go to work there, uh, because they had a kind of an interesting dynamic, right? I mean, you were there from the beginnings up until the heyday. And then ultimately, I mean, were you there until they closed? I started to see, in my opinion, I started to see the decline. And, and between me and you, and I guess when I say this, it's out there, I think the decline was the fact that the two brothers, Ron and Lynn, were, it was always one-upmanship. They never, a lot of times they just didn't work together. They were kind of fighting each other. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to out you. And I think that was part of the demise of the company. That's just my opinion. Now, did, did they, did Auto House, so did they when they in in the 70s when you started there were they doing car shows were they sponsoring because there's a lot of layers to auto house with respect you know talking no, to- there weren't there weren't car shows per se. they 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 had a race car well they sponsored uh car babe if you look at tar babe the car that greg aronson built that was auto house was the major sponsor on that and it did auto house on it they also sponsored a guy named larry kelly who was a buena park fireman they sponsored his car drag cars Mm-hmm. primarily and then, then they did some auto uh some off-road stuff uh ron got involved heavily with the uh off-road stuff john kennedy i don't know if you know that name or not um they, there was a there was a was a B, bmr racing uh and john kennedy was part of that ron was part of that bob bob maynard i think was in it too um so they they, they kind of went off on their own you know arenas so to speak 
Well, and and talking about your position from then it's a job and you're running a retail outlet selling to a really popular hobby uh, in Southern California in the Mecca of the VW world, right? They run the best in perfect weather. And not only, not only is it the VW Mecca of the world, it's the, it's the car Mecca of the world where I live. So you can't get any better than that. Yeah. And so with, with that being said, in your times of work in there, was there, mm-hmm. it, was there anything in history that people are, are so desired for and you're like, that was such a piece of garbage when we got it. It was a flash in the pan piece that was retailed. We brought it in the store, had a bunch of returns. It was junk and everybody today is it's sought after or anything like that. Is there any- oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, as, as an example, a couple of things I can think of. One thing at Auto House that happened was when Ed Craig and I were there, we always used to laugh because Lynn had come in with these new products. You know? uh-huh. I mean, he, Lynn had a quirky, quirky way of talking about him. He was, he was kind of a character. And he, he brought in this thing one day. Lynn and Ron were from, were from Utah. Mm-hmm. The whole family. I knew, I knew his parents, uh, uh, Ted and Verona, uh, or we called her Ronnie. They, you know, the whole family. They were nice people. And um, Lynn came in one day and he goes, well, guys, what do you think of this? And he brought in this thing. It was like a wood slat that you would put up for a picket fence. And it was a thing called the rack. And what the rack was, was you took the bo- you took the backrest out of the back seat and then you took the bottom cushion out. And this thing went in where the bottom cushion was to make basically make the floor level. And it was made out of wood. It was slatted wood. And this was called the rack. And Ed and I, I can remember Ed and I just looking at it going, He's lost his mind. Yeah. Who's going to buy this? And I, I don't know that, that, uh, that they ever, you know, they really ever sold, but they, you know, there were, there were things like that. And then there were things, the other story that I can remember is it was down to Schneider motors one day. This was when I was a kid and there was a guy named Emil Weldon. You know, you may not know that. name. you might know the name Dan Weldon, who was Emil's son. Yeah. Emil, you know that? Emil was the, the salesman for Impy. The- he was the salesman for Impy. Yeah. And, and it was he and Dan that ended up buying the Impy name, the auto house name, the race trim name, Kruhoff. They, they bought it all. They, they got all the news. But not now, but, but there's also a little a little caveat in that story because I understand that Filter Dynamics sold the name to Lyle Cherry in Texas. Now that I don't know. Huh. I know Filter Dynamics was in it in it for a short period of time, but I don't know that portion of the story. Right. But what I do know is that the Emil used to come in and they drove those those orange cars, the the MP cars, and they they had every product that MP sold was on them. I mean, you could you could name it. Mm-hmm. And, and they, he came into Snyder Motors one day with this car, and he was selling, you know, trying to sell Joe some parts. And we went out and we looked at this car, and it had these gross, grubby wheels on it. Well, what those gross, grubby wheels were were BRMs. And we're looking at them, and we're going, God, who'd want those things? How much are those? He says, they're $50 a piece. And we go, are you nuts? You know, because you can buy a chrome wheel in for $20, $25, I think. Right. You know, so why would I spend twice as much for this thing that looks terrible? See, we didn't, you know, there was a thing that we all thought, God, nobody'd want those things. And it took guys like, and I have to attribute that to, to Ron and to Greg and Don Crane and guys like that for, you know, disco- rediscovering the, the BRM wheel and making it the iconic wheel that it is today. Yeah, it was, well, you know, and it served a purpose, right? It was a super lightweight wheel. Yeah, that was, it was, but see, we when you're a 16 year old kid, you don't think like, well, maybe I didn't anyway. I didn't think like that. Right. I, it had to, it had to look cool. Yeah. 
Well, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really a different look, right? It's a flat black mag with no definition. Yeah, it's a flat black matte look, you know, and uh, that reminds me of another story. What I wanted for, for 1964 for Christmas was I wanted a car cover. <laughs> and my my parents said, you're nuts. Well, anyway, I got some money for Christmas. So I was, what, 17 years old. And I remember driving to, and here's a name you may or may not remember. There were two companies. There was M.G. Mitten. Do you know that name? I don't. Do you know uh, Villain B. Hahn? Nope. Both before okay. my time. Yeah. M.G. Mitten and Villain B. Hahn were both based. Hahn was in Santa Monica. Mitten was in Pasadena. A gal named Marion Weber. Uh, owned um, MG Mitten, and what she did, she started this company where they sold, they did things like uh, luggage rack, Amco shift knobs, the, the the badges, all that kind of stuff. Well, Marion got this idea one day. He said her husband had an MG. That's why they called it MG Mitten, and she wanted a she wanted to get a cover for her husband. So she had a guy named Bob Lickman who was in the rags business make her a cover well if you look at covercraft industries today pattern number one and they have thousands and thousands of pattern pattern number one is an mg an early mg a tc or td cover oh wow and i bought my i bought my first car cover from marion weber she handed it to me across the counter in 1964 i drove to pasadena to get it that was a big deal yeah yeah, and then I ended up. I was a, I was a covercraft distributor for years. I sold covercraft products for forty five years. Yeah, that's it, it's crazy how all of these things kind of connect and t- and tie together. Yeah. You know, and and right. in the in the eighties when you're when you're there, like late seventies and eighties, and uh, I don't know if you're there when the Rossi headlights come out and the baby. Yeah, we, we sold those. We sold the Rossi lights. The baby turbo mirrors and all the stuff of my generation of like the 80s, right? All the things that were cool um, yeah. to those guys. Because, you know, I remember when I'm young and I first go into the VW place, I mean, we had a place here in, in Las Vegas called Nevada Off-Road Buggy. And, you know, I would go there. And I'd bring in my check from the Olive Garden and they would, I would endorse it and I'd go through shopping, bring my stuff to the counter and they would just give me my change from, yeah. from my paycheck, you know? And yeah. it, it was, it was just such a, you know, like it was every Friday they'd be like, Hey Bill, how are you? I'm like, oh, I'm just getting, gotta get the Chrome kit. I gotta get the, <laughs> you know, because no, that became your local drug supplier. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, but it's yeah. one of those things where. You know, it was like, oh, who came through here? Oh, I heard there's a, so I, someone just saw an oval window. Where'd you see an oval window at? Oh, I saw it over here on, on West Sahara by Jones. Like, and then you're driving around like, where's this oval window at? You know, because it, it's funny, you know, during the hobby, as it kind of waned away, everything seemed so rare. And then later now today, like, you know, I, I'm a member of the DK, the DBK car club is, you know, and in, in our car club, we've got probably, I mean, a dozen split windows, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. you, you, you go to these, you know, back in the eighties, you'd go to the, go to the VW classic or something. There's like a handful of split windows out there. Oh yeah. Know? And it just seems like all these things have just surfaced out of nowhere yeah. because of and the money they get from those cars today is just astounding. Yeah. No, it's. I, it's great. And, and, and with technology, like you look at these beetles and every, everything they did was like bigger taillights, right. bigger windows, better visibility, all of that right. kind of stuff. Now, what, what do you, 
were you um, any of the, because for you guys, competition was like, um, would have been like Johnny Speed and Chrome and then Small Car Specialties, right? Small Car Specialties actually came along after I was kind of out of the, out of that game. But what I do know about Small Car, if, I, if I've got the story right, there was a company called Valley Core that was in Sacramento. And when the Cadron carburetor kit started to hit, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Valley Core was the source. Now, I think Bob Tomlinson was, you know who Bob Tomlinson was? Yeah, CB, son, the son of Claude. Yeah, that's Claude's son, Bob, and now it's, I guess, the, the Bob's son that runs it. Right, right. Um, it, was known as, it was known as Claude's buggies back then. Well, anyway, they were, they were somehow tied in, as I understand it, to uh, Valley Core, and they were bringing in these Cadron kit like they brought in the Puma and whatnot. Well, Bob Tomlinson and Len Rosevear's eyes, he was the enemy. He was he was probably worse than Johnny Huey of Johnny Speed and Chrome. And we always kept saying, hey, we got guys coming in that want these carb kits. Why don't we get some? Yeah. Well, Len fought us tooth and nail. And I remember Ed Craig and I think Jeff Kimmel and I went in and we said, look, we got to get these things because they're going elsewhere to buy them. Why don't we get a piece of the pie? So anyway, Len finally finally relinquished, and, and we got them, and we sold a ton of them, and they were that was a pretty good product, really, and it was, it was pretty trouble free. But Len Len just didn't like the guys, so that was a big competition. And then small cars came along, and that was part of I think I think that was like Claude's buggies maybe first retail. There was some of those. Yeah, there, there there's a connection there between Claude's buggies and right. That uh, was on there was on Ball Road in Anaheim, real close to where KEZY Radio was. It was right across the street, I think, actually. Now, and, uh, one of the things that is there a connection between the origins of like VW Trends Magazine and Auto House? Very much. Um, VW Trends Magazine. Lynn was in the LA Roadsters. And he met a guy in the L.A. Roadsters by the name of, oh, God, I'm going to go blank here. Uh, Tom McMullen. Yeah. Okay, you know the name Tom McMullen. Okay. He's got the quintessential 32 Ford. I got, yep, and I got, a, I got a Tom McMullen story for you. In fact, Tom McMullen's second wife, the first wife's name was Rose. The second wife's name was Deanna. And Deanna was Lynn Rosevear's secretary. Oh, wow. Yeah, but here's the story. I'll I'll tell you a couple stories about McMullen and and and, uh, and uh, VW Trends. V, uh, VW uh, McMullen's publishing company was on the was actually on La Palma at Brookhurst on the northeast corner. It was TRM Publications, and because Lynn had this connection, they they got this idea. I think that he and Ron and the three of them sat down and they came up with this. You know the name Gerald left. Yes. Okay. Well, Jer was involved in that too. Uh, and Jer's longtime girlfriend also worked at Auto House. Her name was Barbara Alcott. See, it's a, it's a small world. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, the deal was they, want, they wanted to do an Auto House catalog. And so the original DW Trends magazine was, it was, I guess you would say, it was competition for Hot BWs, which was then Dune Buggies and Hot BWs. And what they did is they ended up putting the auto house catalog in the middle of the magazine. Have you ever seen one of those? No, no, I haven't seen one of those. I've got some original auto house catalogs, but I don't know if I have one of those or not, but that was the, that was the original idea was we'll get a magazine out there and it'll promote the auto house catalog right in the middle of it. And it was like, 
20 or 25 pages, as I recall, of just, you know, catalog stuff. Was it a pullout catalog or was it part of the magazine? No, it was just, it was just within the pages of the, of the magazine. No, it wasn't a pullout or anything. It was just part of a magazine, but it was in the middle. So this is early, early 70s? It would have been, yeah, yeah, early to mid, maybe 73 right in there. But the Tom McMullen story is Ron and Lynn, <clears throat> Ron and Lynn had a, um, they both got into flying because Fullerton Airport was literally a block and a half away from the warehouse. So um, they both got their pilot's license and they bought together as a company plane. They had a Cherokee 6. In fact, Ed Craig and I and uh, what was the other guy's name? The guy that started the Auto House franchise in um, Utah. We flew we flew in that Cherokee 6 from well, Fullerton up there and back. But the, the story goes so. One morning, I get a I get a call from Lynn. I was I think it was at the Buena Park store, which is only about a mile and a half away. I get a call. He says, "Hey, what are you doing?" I says, "What do you mean? What am I doing?" He says, "You want to go to lunch?" I go, "Yeah, why?" He says, "Well, come on over here." I said, "Well, my wife's name is Christy." I said, "Christy's here." He says, "Bring her." So we go over to the warehouse. We get in the car. We drive over to Fullerton Airport. Ron, Lynn. My wife and myself get in the aircraft and we fly to Catalina Island for breakfast or for, for lunch. And what I didn't realize until we got up in the air, Lynn had just gotten his pilot's license that morning. Oh, good grief. We're going, oh God, we're going to die. <laughs> we're just going to, we're just going to die. So we, we did that, but you know, we, they had this aircraft and we flew. Well, anyway, Tom McMullen, back to, back to his part of the story, Tom and Tom was probably the guy who was instrumental in getting Ron and Lynn into that. Tom McMullen um, had a MIG trainer jet that he used to fly. So one day, Lynn, I'm in the office, and Lynn says, hey, I just got a call from Tom. We got to go over to Long Beach to pick Tom up. He's flying in. So we go over there, and he flew in in this, in this MIG trainer, and there's a jet, and uh, he comes out. And Tom was physically stature. He was a little guy. But he wore this bright yellow flight suits. He wore the orange flight suit, and he was he was kind of loud and obnoxious. Right. There's a other way to say. I was just Tom. Um, so anyway, Indiana's with him, his wife. So we pick him up. We were in Lens Mercedes. We go back over. He wants to stop and have lunch. So we went over. Uh, ironically, you know about Nick's Nick's Burgers. With I a do. Pink- Okay, yes. well, it got the corner from that. There's a place used to be fires. The building so there. It's something else now. I think it's called Salt and Pepper. But anyway, we went over there to have lunch, and Tom comes walking in in the orange jumpsuit, and everybody, of course, looking at him like, who is this guy? You know, I mean, he's loud. We had lunch, and then we ended up going from there. We took him up to his house. Now, he lived up in the, up in the Fullerton Hills right off of Euclid, and we went up there. So we go in the house. And I drive by the house all the time now. I, it, every time I go by the thing, he had a, he had a cage in the back. He had a cheetah in the cage. Oh, this, yeah. Is, yeah. this is the kind of thing McMullen was. So, and, you know, that was my encounter with McMullen. But he was the guy kind of behind. He did Chopper magazines, and I think he did Low Riders and things like that. And um, that's where the VW Trends, the origins of it, came from. Uh, and they did. They did several issues. Ed Craig was he was pretty involved in that. I never got I never got that involved in it. Well, but he was, he was kind of involved in it. Yeah, and uh, talking to Ron, you know, they had a company called Graphic House. 
mm-hmm. that would that would print their catalog. I mean, because back then the big deal was print catalogs, right? Like that was yeah. graphic house. They also had a place called Race Trim. Did he tell you about that? He did, yeah. So uh, it where he started having some parts manufactured for them. They when I went to work there, they were doing uh, the wood grain dashes for the for the VWs. You know, the three piece that you put on the on the dash, and then they did doorknobs and things like that. A lot of wood, and they were also doing fiberglass kits. They were doing sedan hoods, deck lids, flared fenders, and then they did um, Baja kits. A full Baja kit, and they made them two ways. They made them chopper gun or hand laid glass. Yeah. You, you know, we, had, we had a lot of that stuff, and we we sold a lot of it. Yeah, well, you know, there, there's all there's so much of this that that kind of gets interconnected because one of the amazing things for me with with Auto House was like the the business decisions made over there from the catalog from manufacturing their own catalog to then being involved with VW trans then private labeling product in boxes made by local suppliers but kind of really it, it seemed like there's one company that that I seen that early time that really focused on branding themselves as like the ultimate VW brand and that was like Auto House you know like cuz you saw they they I would think in those in that era people really weren't as, especially as small down the VW world, they they weren't private labeling things, and they weren't you know working to try to be because it seemed like you know talking from talking to Ron that their focus is really just to, to like try to be the king gorilla in that industry, no matter you know no matter what, whether it was working consignment deals with the shock suppliers and people like that, so that you know that you don't got to lay out tons of money up front for for inventory, you know. Maybe. We did we did consignment stuff. We did like uh, uh, Mickey Thompson uh, when Mickey was still alive. He we used to have have meetings and Mickey would be there. And uh, yeah, we did the uh, um, oh god, what were the uh, it's an Italian? It's it's the gas shock that the, Bill the people. No, no, not Bill. Those are No, no, no. Come on. We sold all those, but no, the the Carbone. Carbone, they were gas shocks. That was actually the company, the family that created the gas shock. We sold those, and they were they were branded under Mickey Thompson's label. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, Decarbone, and uh, uh, and then we sold Billstein, and we also sold Coney, um, and then we sold you know the lower end, the, just the, the standard replacements. Uh, but yeah, they, you know, it, Auto House was kind of a full service center. You could go get your basic oil change kitter you could go in and get high performance stuff you could get custom accessory seats uh you know car covers bras um any doodad that was was out there we had and there was always there was always new new stuff coming along coming down the pike so to speak yeah i mean there at that time in the hobby there just seemed to be so much going on you know that uh especially that with the evolutions and and interestingly when i look at like impy selling to filter dynamics in 72 it's like right after the super beetle comes out and then you know there's nothing really that relates new like new parts for all their backlog of it so it's, it's almost like they got out of the business at just the right time yeah, and, and what I think was about, uh, you know, Joe Vitone and Empty, I mean, Joe was was obviously a very, very astute, creative kind of guy. Um, and when he got in it, and then he, he, he had the one dealership where I actually bought my car, which was this, it was downtown Riverside, and it was kind of an older, 
probably a building built in the twenties or thirties, you know, it'd probably been some other dealership prior to, uh, to him getting in there. But then he built this rather elaborate Volkswagen franchise. It was out off the Riverside, the 91 freeway at Adams. Mm -hmm. And I remember going in there a few times and they actually had, you know, when you go into a dry cleaners and how the, how the clothes come around, they push the button and it comes around to you. Yeah. He had, he had a system kind of like that where they could bring parts around um, to, you know, to what you need. And they just, they didn't really have to go anywhere to get it. I mean, it was, it was pretty innovative, I thought, especially for the time. But I also think what you said, you know, Volkswagen at that point, the Japanese market had started to really take hold. And I think a lot of people saw the writing on the wall that the Volkswagen is kind of old technology. There's not a lot of places they can go for the future. So maybe this is what, you know, MP, you know, when Joe Vitone thought and when he got an opportunity to get out of it, maybe he took it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting because that's the part that, that when we look at everything from our hobby standpoint, you know, our thought process is, man, it was the golden era. It was this, it was that, but to somebody somewhere in that chain, it was part of a business decision and things were, it was time to cut bait and keep moving and switch gears, you know? So it's interesting as, as you know, having these conversations and going back and, and talking about what took place at those times, it starts to kind of lay things out as to how things came about, you know? Um, right. I, I definitely, I definitely, uh, you know, enjoyed my conversation with Ron, which th- that'll come out, you know, in a little while that, that podcast, but just understanding like, cause there's always a different perspective. There's you as the general manager, which you've right. got, you know, you, you've got your 30,000 foot elevation, your, your employees are at 15,000 feet. And then someone's up there at, at 45,000 feet looking from, you know, so everybody's kind of looking at the same business from a different set of eyes. Different set of eyes. No. And I, I agree. And obviously it was, it was Ron and, and Lynn's business and they, they, you better hope that they had a better eye on it than everybody else. Now, what, what did you, what's the biggest thing you learned? Cause you're kind of a self-made guy, right? I mean, you're just, you know, you're just a dopey VW car guy that, that you took your passion cars and it provided a, a living for you your entire life. And yeah, you, you know, I that's what I tell people. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky because I did, you know, what I love to do for, for a career. And I, you know, how can you, how can you ask any more than that? You know, you go out and you do what you want to do and you, 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 you know, you put bread on the table. How, how can you do any better than that? Well, and, and did, what did you learn from working at auto house as far as, cause you did a few things after that. And one of the things I, I always like to say is one of my first businesses was a partnership. And I realized quickly partnerships usually don't work. <laughs> I would agree. Um, yeah, I, I when I when I left Auto House because I saw the writing on the wall, and I had another friend that actually worked at Auto House at the same time, and he was moving on, and we kind of got together and we thought we need to go out and we we'll do our own thing. So we uh, <clears throat> we found a location in Orange, and we we created this this company called Utopia Motoring Accessories that was on Main Street, and we were we were still heavily Volkswagen oriented, but we were you know, we, we were more in tune to the other cars, you know, if you wanted a, an Anza exhaust for your Alpha or something like that, you could get it. And this is where the companies like MG Mitten and Villain Behan 
they were they were kind of in that arena. So we did that. But, you know, within a year or so, uh, the partnership, and we were equal partners on paper, uh, the writing was on the wall. It wasn't working out. From my perspective, I was putting in all the time. And, you know, it, it just, Mark wasn't, his name was Mark Melberth, mm-hmm. uh, who's a good guy. He, he wasn't around a lot. And I couldn't count on him. So that's when I said, you know, we got to do something. And that's when he went to the accountant, I went to the accountant, and he made a proposal to the accountant to buy me out. And the accountant says, take take the money and run. Right. Which is you know, now Mark stayed there a, a few more years, I think, but I don't know that he ever really did. I don't think he got rich. Right. I'll put it. Well, and, and I think that the, part of the difference is people just have different philosophies when it comes to business. And they, they, do. they do. You know, when Mark was a, he was a good guy. He was a good friend, but we just, we kind of were in different worlds. And, and once we got into business together, I realized, and I think he probably realized too, that we were very different. Now, a lot of times difference is good. Yeah. You can have a balance, a good balance, a good balance, but sometimes, uh, you know, so anyway, uh, I guess it hurt my pride when I said, well, I'm walking away from this. It's really the only thing I ever walked away from, but I moved, I moved on and I did other things. So it was just, you know, one door closes, the other one opened. Right. You know, so that's the way I looked at it. Well, I did a couple more things before, you know, my venture with Roysby, which ended up being 32 years. Yeah. And you, and you started there as an employee, kind of as a manager and then worked your way up into ownership. I came in as the assistant general manager. Um, that was in uh, February of 1986, and uh, I would have—I was number four guy on the chain at that point uh, because I'd already been in the industry uh, what 18 years, 19 years, something like that. So when I came to work there, I had like 75 people working for me, and uh, you know I, I enjoyed it. I was—it was a lot of fun, and it was—it was much more diversified. We did some Volkswagen stuff. In fact, if you've ever seen. Have you seen the, the, the VW engine rebuild kits, which is the rubber band on the card? I have. I have one. Yeah. That's noisy. That's where that came from. Oh, really? Did, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where that's where all that. We, we did thousands of those things. Uh, but we but we we were uh, we were a, a, a Robert Bosch distributor. I, I was a million dollar account with Robert Bosch. Uh, well, let me ask this, let me ask this question yeah. about that rubber band. So sure. was 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 that like did that become kind of a pet rock thing or was that like a did, yeah. did you use it? That's, that's exactly what it was. No, it was going obviously long before I got there because I remember when I worked with Auto House, we used to buy those. And we'd hang, we'd hang them. We built gondolas on with pegboard out out in the stores, and we used to hang those things. And we sold them like crazy. I think we sold them for a dollar, dollar and a half. Well, what's a what's a rubber band and a impact cost? In right. Reality, yeah, no. nothing. But you know, we 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 did that. So Roisey was much more diversified. We were big into foreign carb kits. Uh, we were we were a Bosch account, a major Bosch account. We were a major Hella account. We imported stuff. We once again we covered all of the foreign, uh, you know, the the dealers. This is before the dealers locked it up, where you couldn't buy from that outside source. We supplied all the Japanese dealers with filters, this, that, whatever, um, plus all the Bosch stuff, and uh, for for the German based things. Uh, I mean, we had a lot of people working for us. It was a big company. I mean, we were doing hundreds of thousands of dollars monthly. 
yeah. it was it, it was a big company. But then what happened was the owner, the founder of the company, which had started in 1957, he was in his late seventies, early eighties. Then he wasn't really active. And then where there was, there was a vice president and the GM that I was under and the vice president became ill and he ended up passing away. And then the GM, um, had a heart problems and he got sick. So all at once they, they approached me about, would you, would you like a piece of pie? And I had asked that question when I first went there and I was told no, but it was a, it was a pretty good position. So I thought, well, it's worth it. It's worth a try. So anyway, it, it, as, as these people dropped off, the, the stock got retired and I ended up acquiring the stock. So I ended up owning the whole company. And, uh, you know, that's what people always say. Well, you want everything, but when you get the hot potato and you've got it in your hand, then you got to deal with it. Right. Right. And so sometimes be, I, be careful what you wish for. You might get it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you know, I, I did, I, I, you know, I had a lot of people and we, we had a, we had about a 20,000 foot building over in Torrance and, uh, we ended up moving out of there. We moved to Orange County and moved a couple of times in Orange County. And, the, the last place where I could walk to from my house and that worked out good. It was smaller and I had less people, which was in my perspective, less headaches. And, and the industry during that time, the industry had changed dramatically. Um, everybody was becoming automated and, uh, a lot of the stuff that, you know, was, was really hot 20 years before you couldn't give away anymore. It just, it, the whole thing had changed. And I suspect in the Volkswagen world that happened too. Well, and what's interesting in the automotive industry, there, 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 there's probably a ten to fifteen year gap when something's valuable. Then it all of a sudden it drops off because automotive change or whatever. And then about fifteen years later, as those things start to come back, it, that's where we get all of our NOS stuff from, right? Like these. Yeah, it it it, it kind of cycles through, and uh, uh, yeah, you're you're right. It, it, you know, they talk about well, this is brand new. No, nothing is new. It's all just reinvented. Right, it's just a it's just a modification of somebody else's idea, you know. You know it's been gone long enough that people forget, and then all once you come up with this new fabulous idea, and uh, uh, you know you you reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Now, when you, so just speaking on the standpoint of like you're back there in the '60s, you know, with your car, with your '63 bug and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. What what is the uh, and only asking because I've I've got a Corvair. What was the impression of the Corvair when it came out by VW people? Uh, was it well, hated? I, I mean, no, I don't think it was hated. Uh, in fact, I remember, well, my wife had two Corvairs when I was dating her. She had both coupes, uh, first and second generation. We used to go everywhere in them, and I loved them. Frankly, um, a, a longtime friend involved in, in the Volkswagen world, uh, Mark Bueller, he had a he had a bus with a Corvair in it. Uh, he was involved with Ron Fleming and the Underdog towards the end of that end of that era. Um, they were they were kind of a novelty, I think. Right. Uh, I don't think people, you know, they were air cooled. They're kind of in you know in the same family. Uh, they were different. I don't think people hated them. I, I personally didn't. I always found them kind of innovative, and I think that you know, with the press like that Ralph Nader gave them, I, I, I thought they got bad press, frankly. I thought it wasn't that bad of a car. It was a pretty good car, really. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's, I'm, interest, I'm interested in it because it's, it seems to be this little gap, and I, I'm a late-model Corvair guy. I, I really yeah. only like the late models because it's, uh-huh. it's like a baby Camaro, and, and it looks like my Riv, and I think they're all designed by the same guy. 
and it has kind of that that kind of shark kind of vibe to it and mm-hmm. you, you know i think the technology you know coming from the volkswagen world and just recently in the past couple of years getting into them i'm completely amazed that i'm amazed that i have to take back and think you know this is the biggest automotive manufacturer decides to go in the air-cooled market and they really built super stout bottom ends i mean they the engineering is crude compared to volkswagen but they're mm-hmm. really, I mean, really well-built kind of bulletproof cars if you just take care of the maintenance on them. And, and you know, I, I think the reality of that is I think that the General Motors saw the writing on the wall. What did what had happened with the Volkswagen and the impact that it had on America, you know, in the market. And they thought, well, you know, nobody else is in this game. Why don't we get into it, you know? And uh, I, I suspect that's probably why they went there. Well, in fact, I'm I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard that, that, that Porsche was actually involved with, with GM and the development of that vehicle. Well, I don't know if it's true to it or not. Well, Porsche had actually purchased, I've because I, you know, I'm into Porsches too, and Porsche has a, it, they have a 356 with a Corvair engine in it when they were testing for the 911 for the flat six. So Porsche had bought an early, uh, an early Corvair to test weight weight and performance in the 356 body so that was you know it's just it's interesting how everything kind of begets the next thing but i really i love seeing how the hobbies connected on on the back end of those things because you know you had like crown products that they made corvair stuff and vw stuff or kennedy manufacturing was right down the street from the auto house store in newport or in costa mesa yeah and you know and there's so many, so many of those things that back in that, in that time kind of crossed over. Now, do you, one question I've been trying to get to the bottom of who narrowed the first beam and did, when did you ever see beams getting narrowed? I honestly, I can't answer that question. Um, what I can tell you about beams back in the day when, you know, the, we used to, we used to lower the cars by pulling the bars and then the selected drop was out there, but the selected drop was, was really terrible. I thought, yeah, it was uh, awful. If you rode in a car with it, it was horrible. Right. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the guys at fat were involved with that because they were really the guys that, you know, that did the, uh, the, the, the small bolt, uh, Porsche bolt pattern, um, you know, and the disc brakes and all that. They were they were really innovative in that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me, but I, to answer your question, I honestly don't know. Yeah, I've kind of put that question out of my podcast. I've had a few different answers, but I've had some people tell me about, you know, that they're, they've seen beams narrowed in the late 70s, you know, where there were cars that had narrowed beams. Where I never saw one. I'm not going to say they didn't exist, but I certainly never saw one. Well, because that was the challenge in the 70s. You wanted wider tires for better traction, but you couldn't fit them underneath the fender wells. Then you'd have to get fiberglass flared fenders. Then it lost the kind of look of the bug. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't recall ever seeing narrowed beam until well, sometime in the 80s. Now, they, they probably existed prior to that, but I just don't remember them. Now, did Auto House ever have a bug built like the sticker? Um, they had a well that that sticker that's the with the with the little character in it the the the, the kind of the big nose sticking out the window. Yes, yeah, that's that's Dave Deal that did that did that uh, 
he's also the guy, I believe, that did the work for the cartoon work for MG Mitten and people like that. Um, Lynn Rosevere had a a beetle. It was an orange beetle, and of course, because it was the company vehicle, it had all that stuff on it. It had the it had the glass front hood with the indents in it. It had the deck lid. It had the flared fenders on it. Um, was it ever exactly like that? No, but you know, that, that could have been taken from when Dave Deal thought he could have done a character from that. But beyond that, Ron really never had, Ron had a Sterling. You remember the Sterlings? I do. Yeah, Ron had one of those. Um, and then they had a, they had a, it was about a 68, um, type two. Uh, bus that was painted the orange and that was like the company one of the company buses but those are the only cars that i really remember that were you know if you want to call them company related right yeah beyond that i, I couldn't think of anything no. but the other thing that we got into we got into rabbit stuff you know when the rabbit came out we started we started coming up with stuff like that of course it never had the impact that, uh, that, the, that the Beatles had, but there, we did have accessories for those. Was it just a different buyer getting the rabbit? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think it was, I think it was, we had a rabbit. My wife, I bought my wife a rabbit. It was a pretty good little car, really. Yeah. No, they were, I mean, that's, that's one of the first hatchbacks that comes out that starts the whole hatchback thing after that. Right. The hatchback thing. And, and one of the things that all the house sold was kind of innovative, I thought that we had, the rabbit and the and behind the rear seat there was a uh, there was a well where the spare tire went. Right. Well, some guy and this is one of these stories where the guy comes in one day and talks to Lynn. He's got an auxiliary gas tank that fits into that location, and you took a hole saw and you drilled into the side of the wheel well or the the spare tire well, and you ran the the line out to the main tank. Mm-hmm. So you basically doubled your fuel, and. Uh, we used to t- we we had one in her car, and we used to take that car and go up to Mammoth and go skiing, and you could go all the way up there and back and never have to stop for gas. Oh yeah, that's a, that's. Uh... Now, you know, the, the bad part of that is, heaven forbid, if you got rear-ended. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that was one of the big things that we had, and there was a lot of there was a lot of trinket stuff for them. I don't remember a lot of performance stuff. I think we had some headers, some things like that. We and... got into the truck thing too. And then by the time by the time you leave over there at Auto House, you're kind of you're not actively in the VW scene and doing too much. Other than, other than working for the company, no, no, I, my my car had gone. I still had I still had my bus, uh, but no, I mean I just you know it was it, by that point it just be kind of kind of become a place to go because in my mind I kept seeing I kept seeing you know the end of the line. Yeah, I, and, and as being an enthusiast since you know the '80s, I've seen that a couple times where I thought, ah, this is probably going to be the end of the VW world, and right. it just seems to keep evolving into something different and and kind of you know getting a getting a little bit bigger. What's what is the yeah, interesting part to me? In a way, it kind of reinvents itself. Yeah, yeah. you know, I think I think there were other people that that saw what I saw and they said, you know, well, it's time to move on to whatever the next opportunity is. And, uh, uh, do I have any regrets? No, but I, I'll tell you what, uh, um, I, th- th- those days spent at auto house were some of the best days of my life. Now, once again, it was the time and the place, you know, right. I was young. I just got married. 
you know, you, you, you said it yourself when you got your paycheck from the Olive Garden, you went down and you gave him the check and then you just started shopping. And I mean, you know, it was like every week it was, well, we're going to have, you know, there's, there's, a, we always said DKP had meetings on Sunday nights at the clubhouse and usually on Saturday nights we had an event, whether it be a rally or this or that. So your whole life was built around that. Right. When you're single, sure. You worked, you worked all week and then you got some money and then you went and did these, I guess you could perceive them as, as fun things. But, you know, as you, as you grow older and your responsibility change, you, you begin to look at things differently. Yeah. No, it's, and and I, I think a lot of us in the club in the first generation of the club just kind of finally said, you know, we need to, we need to move on. I know, I know, uh, I certainly did. Um, Ron did, although they stayed in the industry, like I stayed in the, in, in a different aspect of it. We all stayed in the industry, but it was just different. And then you know, 10, 11 years ago, we started, a lot of these guys started coming back around. You know, we bought cars, we got active in, in this stuff again. We're very active in it today. And wh- one question touched on that. Who who got the original hood badges made? That's the $20 question. No, I'm just, gonna, just out of curiosity, you know, because usually if something like that comes up, it's like a guy's got a buddy who's got a this. You know what I mean? You know, boy, that, that's a deep dark one. I know I had, I had two or three of the badges, and I think they cost us – you're gonna love this. I think they were like seven dollars a piece. Yeah, I still have I still have one of my original badges. Uh, and no, it's not for sale. <laughs> well, that's I still, have, I still have my original DKP membership card. One of three cards that were issued that does not have a serial number on it. It simply said Council, and it's and it's signed by Pete Dayton and Gary Huggins. And what I'm probably only one of those on the planet. And what we. What would, you, what would you guys use the cards for? It was just an identification thing. You know, we, we used to have cards, that, you know, if you, you pulled up and somebody was having problems with the car, you know, you'd help them and then you'd give them a card, you know, you've been assisted by da 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 da, you know, member of their Kleiner Panzers. Oh, really? It was, it was kind of a novelty thing, but yeah, we all had membership cards. Yeah. And, uh, and but the, yeah, the, the, the badge thing, boy, you know, I know a couple of guys over the years have done recreations or reissues on them. I don't want to, I don't want to give out names on that, but I, I do know they've been done. Right. Uh, but yeah, the original ones, I don't know. I just remember they were, they were like $7 and uh, boy, do I remember when I got my car back from Becker's and uh, we had to drill the hole. We had to drill two holes in the hood to put that badge on. I couldn't do it. Jim Edmondson did it. I had to look away. And, and now, uh, Becker's, how did Becker's become the guy for the VW guys? Leonard, Leonard Becker is called Becker's Bughouse. And, mm-hmm. and he, he was actually, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of car guys, car rod guys that came out of Anaheim, local guys. And, and Leonard Becker was one of those guys, which I never knew until years later. But he had a shop, it, it's still there, it's out on uh, Lincoln, very close to Glacelle. Um, and I think that probably Greg took his white car there. Um, and I don't know why Greg went there, whether, whether he saw some work that came out of there, but anyway, that's, then everybody started going there. Uh, it just kind of became the place and all Leonard would do was, uh, was Volkswagen and Porsche. He really didn't, he didn't venture into anything else. And he lived up front 
And then he had the shop. It was kind of a downer. You drove down in there and the shop was in the back. And he did, he did really stellar work and his prices were, were very fair for the time. And, uh, and he was a nice guy too. He was a very nice guy. And you guys would, you guys would strip your car and bring it there ready to be painted or he would do yeah, all. Yeah, you know, I'm, or you could take it to him and he would, he would do it all. But yeah, the thing was we would strip the car. In fact, uh, I remember taking mine over there. My friend, longtime buddy, Art Alvarez, DKP one still, um, see him on a regular basis. Uh, we, we got his dad's Buick. I remember that. And we towed my car over there so that then it was a shell and I've got pictures of it. And then, then Leonard did the painting and it was in the paint shop when I was getting married. I remember that. So that was <laughs> in August, of, August of 71. And what would it cost for a paint job over there? <sighs> it seems to me that it was like three, $400. Uh, I know that when I did, when Brad did my interior and I went over that, he did, he did everything in the car. He did the full interior. He did the sunroof, uh, external sunroof. And he did a complete custom trunk for me, he made a bra for it. And I think that whole thing was like $350. That's wild. And, and how does Brad's kind of become the go-to place? Well, Just- the same thing. Um, one of the, one of the early members, uh, a guy named Mike Mahaffey. And I saw Mike, uh, I talked to him about four or five days ago. Uh, Mike worked at a, an upholstery supply place in Anaheim, and I think Mike was the guy that originally said, hey, go over to this guy and have him do the work, although Mike never had any work done there. But uh, Brad used to come in. His name was Don Bradford, but he went by Brad. He used to come in and buy get supplies from where Mahaffey worked, and uh, uh, I think that's where it, where it happened. And then Greg took his car over there, and they did the – what's known as the biscuit pattern. And I don't know who came up with that, if that was Brad's idea or, or Greg's. And then I took my car there and that was kind of the go-to place. Mm-hmm. My car was done. My, my butternut car was done not very far after Greg's car was done. They were pretty close together, but Greg's car, because it was the first one got, you know, all the notoriety. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting. And, and, and cow look was such a small segment of really the, was of the hobby that it right. it almost you know it it's it's like it you know it what like the autocross thing and the flared fender and the Chevy wheels with the slot right. bags that was way bigger at the time, right? And the, and the other thing talking about the Calif that that had been done when Greg did his car, Greg was really a you know he was an all out performance street race guy, and. I guess I was into that too, but my thing was I always liked luxury cars, obviously. Right. And I had gone to a show, and Volkswagen of America had a, they had a, a it was about it was a '68 '69 Beetle something along that line. They made into a limousine. It was black, mm-hmm. and they had done it. They had done it with like gray wool interior, just like a limousine was had. And, and I looked at that car and the, the wheels clicked in my head. And I said, well, I don't want, everybody was doing black interior. And I said, I don't want a black interior. I want to do something different. And I don't want to, you know, Greg had uh, uh, fiberglass seats in the car and I didn't want that. I wanted something more, more cush. So we went different routes then. And my thing was, I want to do something more on a, on an upscale luxury type thing. So I went with the, it was a sort of a chocolate brown, interior to match the gold or to contrast with the gold exterior. And 
I found a material that looked like suede. It really wasn't suede, but I had all the inserts done in that. I had the headliner done in it. And, and no one had ever gone that way before. It was all, you know, black vinyl. Everybody was doing black vinyl. And I just said, I want something different. So we were, we were done at the same time or pretty close to the same time, but with two different approaches. Yeah. And how to, how to do it. <laughs> well, I think it's, I, I, I think it's, it's really neat to get down into the, the origins of how it all came together. And, and just like everything else in history, sometimes things are based on proximity or availability and it just kind of becomes the way that those things were put together and through certain people, you know, the same paint guys, same upholstery guys, all that right. stuff. You know, I right. think it's, uh, it, it's kind of neat to, to hear the backstory of how it all, how it all right. kind of came together. Well, that, that holds true. Even with me uh, today, years ago, when I, when I got into the Chrysler thing, I had a, I had a friend that, you know, I was looking to have some interior work done. And he says, well, go to this guy. You know, he says, when you want, this is the story. He says, when you go in and meet this guy, you'll have no confidence in him whatsoever. And he was exactly right. Well, he ended up doing about six or seven cars for me. And I still, and I mean, complete, he did complete interiors in full leather. And I still use the guy to this day. So, you know, that's kind of, I've seen a, a ton of people. Uh, in fact, some of the BW guys go there now too. Yeah. So I, that's the way I like you find somebody that it's good at, at what you want done. And then you, they get, you know, their name kind of carries on and you just go from that point. No, I, I, I completely agree. It's, uh, yeah. you know, some, some of the strangest, uh, strangest guys you meet, they're, they're more artistic than they are, uh, kind of on a, on a social, on a social basis, but sometimes their work speaks for itself. So. Exactly. Exactly. Well, everybody's a little bit nuts. Right. Yeah. That, and maybe that's the thing we got to think sometimes when we think everybody's a little crazy, maybe we got to look in the mirror. <laughs> see. Yeah, we're, we're all crazy. And you know, I, I look at this sometimes and I go, why do I have all this stuff? What's wrong with me? Is it a gene defect? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, there's definitely uh there. I, I said that to my wife not long ago when I was talking to a buddy, I, I was interviewing a guy, Lee Bashaw, and he has a cow look bug that was, it was a Duren Kafer car, super nice. He lives up in Sacramento. I mean, it's just an immaculate car. And I said to my wife, how come I just can't have one really nice car and be happy? Like, I've always got to have, because I kind of like like the experience being able to come home and drive this or take that one out, because each one has a little different, quite a bit different character to them. But it's, yep. it's just kind of the... I don't know. I mean, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like, because I can, I mean, I, you know, I mean, for me, I grew up, I grew up poor, didn't have anything and, and thought, ah, when I get a couple of nickels rubbed together, I'm going to buy the stuff that I want to, that I want to drive. Yeah. You know, the other part of that is I think what I've always been, people will say you're very, you're very detailed oriented. You're very picky. And I, I guess I am. I don't, I don't see it that way, but the reality is I've had enough people tell me that, but there must be some truth in it. But I know when, when I've done cars and I, you know, I, I try to do the, the ultimate cars. Like when I did this one Chrysler, I spent eight and a half years on it, you know, and it was just, it was nuts. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now I look at the car and people come up and they, well, in fact, that car, they, uh, my, so the model company made a model off the car. Oh, wow. So that, that tells you, that, I guess, the quality of the car. But yet I, I sit there and I look at it and I see a billion flaws. Yeah. You know, why did I do that? That could have been done a lot better. Well, gee, this is not right. You know, so, you know, what is, what is perfection? You're, you know, 
what looks good to you now, you look out a few years and you go, well, that doesn't look so good. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's a never changing hobby. And, and I, and I love it for all it's, all the stuff it puts me through and the tracking people down and doing this crazy podcast, because there's just something that's really, you know, endearing about the, the, the time and commitment that we put into these cars that bring us together with people when it's all said and done, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. So no, they're, they're definitely a part of my life. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad, you know, I thank God every day that, you know, I was able to do this and have such a, such a fun time doing it. No, it's, listen, that's great. And you've, you've got some, some great cars in your entire collection. You know, the, 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 one of these days when I'm down there, uh, Orange County, I'm going to stop by and check out, uh, I want to come by and check out some of the Chrysler's cause I, I'm really intrigued by the, the Chrysler stuff that goes way off the deep end with the, uh, some of the, the those are the cars with some of the push button transmissions, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're push button for flight cars. Yeah. Well, you're always, you're always invited and I'll, I'll, yeah, no, I'll make you a believer. Well, I think, I think it's too cool, but you know, uh, last question, any car that got away that you wish in hindsight, you wish you would have never sold out of everything you've ever owned. Well, just do I have to, do I have to nail it down to a single car? Yes. <laughs> can I nail it down to two cars? Yeah, yeah you can do two. The, the two cars would be my, my original BW. I, I, I miss that car. I think about it often. And I was going to, when I got back into the thing, I was going to do a recreation and I had a, in fact, the car has been recreated. So I'm told and I've seen pictures of the car in Europe. Um, and I, and then I realized that, you know, I'm too old to be doing this. I just, it's not feasible to buy something that's done. That car would be one. And the other car would be, um, I had a 1955, Mingo Red Chrysler C300, the first year of the car. And the first two years of those cars were very special to me. And I sold that car, and it went to Belgium. And I regret that. So those would probably be the two uh, that, that I wish I could. I mean, there's others, but those would probably be the top two that I wish I could, you know, get back. Yeah, no, listen, there's always. Uh... The VW is long gone. Uh, I don't know where that, I'm sure nothing, maybe pieces of that exist. The, the, uh, the Chrysler 300 does exist in a museum in, in Belgium or in a, in a private collection in Belgium. So that would be obtainable if, you know, if money was no object and the guy was willing to sell. Yeah. Well, that's great. John, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us. And I'm sure I'm going to be coming back to you for resources on certain things and, and maybe we'll find, uh, certain nuances just to go down a rabbit hole in and talk about of, of the VW hobby, man. I, I think it's uh you're a wealth of information. You've got a pretty great memory for, you know, being able to remember all these things from back in the day. So, yeah, that's, that's, I, they always come to me and they say, go ask John. Cause he remembers this stuff. I look at it as kind of hurts. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I do remember stuff. So wow. anyway, well, I enjoyed it. I, uh, it, I, I love, I love sharing I guess the the Volkswagen stuff and the other stuff because it's it's part of my life for me. No, it's I, I, one of the more productive mornings I've spent in a while. <laughs> well, hey, I really appreciate appreciate you coming on, and uh, we will definitely we'll, we'll definitely do something again. Okay, Bill, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, you got it. I hope you guys took a lot of notes because there was tons of information in that podcast, a lot of history, and John Lazenby's probably got to be one of the guys that 
he's got a memory like a steel trap and everything he's got he's got locked in there from names and people and cars and all that stuff so it, it was a long ride but it was a great ride because we got a lot of detail into the early scene of southern california and so many varied planes of it with a with a difference of you know these these cars and the places that there were uh, the shops and you know the, the shops that were available at the time and some of the places they source things so uh, it's a wealth of information and and like i do on this podcast I like to get all of it in there, and sometimes they're a little bit longer than normal, and I think that's even better because the more information we get, the better we understand the history and we see how the hobby came together before we were around. So, uh, appreciate uh, appreciate John for coming on the podcast. It was it was great. So, and if you guys enjoyed that podcast, make sure you share it with your friends, copy and paste wherever you're listening to this from, and forward it to some of your friends. If you want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com. Click on the merch tab and pick up some merch as well as leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and you'll get a shout out on the podcast. So appreciate everybody uh, for the hard work that they do, you know, with the phone calls that I get and the leads that I get and the people I chase down and all that stuff. So uh, I do it. I do it because I love it, guys. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoy it as much as I do. But until next week, more podcasts to come. So be ready. I got uh, I got George Otto out of Germany. I got Greg Aronson coming up and then i've got richie king so plenty on the table to come out to you guys so i'm looking forward to the next couple weeks you guys getting the stuff and uh until next week later you probably don't know that there's a new volkswagen